Welcome to Chris Waddell Living It, where we talk with experts in the experience of being human. My good buddy, Rick D'Elia, is joining us today. He's a comic. I knew him as a ski racer, but he was, he was on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno uh, as a recurring sketch performer, has been on shows such as Stand Up, Stand Up on Comedy Central, National Lampoon's Funny Money on GSN. Uh, Comedians Unleashed on AP, uh, Laughs on Fox, Jokesters, uh, Jokesters TV on CW, Grand Slam, Comedy Jam, West Coast Comedy Stars and Encore. He's been on a lot of stuff, has has entertained our troops. I want to talk about that. That's like back to the Bob Hope days. Uh, Has also done uh, a couple, three Specials for Showtime, Going Native, Green Collar Comedy Slam, and The Godfathers of Comedy. Uh, he has two books out, How to Talk to a Yankee Fan. He and I are both diehard Red Sox fans, so I share that with him. I, it's, it's, on my, it's on my bookshelf somewhere, but my books are in storage at the moment. And the other one is Bathroom Bits. So, so yeah, we'll talk to, I mean, has done a bunch of different things. We'll get into a bunch of the things that he has done. I am just absolutely amazed that you've made it in comedy. And Rick, welcome. Thank you for joining, it, <laughs> joining the Living It podcast. And this is going to be fun. This is going to be a wild ride because you have been a funny guy your whole life. Did you know that you were going to go into comedy? No, 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 no. I, I felt, you know, back asswards into it. As you know, where we grow up, and just so your viewers know, uh, Chris and I have known each other since we were nine and 10 years old. And everyone was funny in Massachusetts. We all have that sarcastic, East Coast, cynical type of humor. So I didn't think I stood out any differently from anybody else. We were all just wise asses and always busting each other's balls. So it was just normal. When I got out and uh, into the real world, I guess, outside of that little ski racing bubble and, and, you know, that small community that we grew up in and started meeting other people, I was like, oh, other people aren't like us. Why are they laughing? Why is this funny to other people? And then it dawned on me like, oh, I guess I am funny. I just thought I was a normal mass hole, you know, from the Berkshires. Can, can I tell them what you told me the first time that I won a trophy? <laughs> So I'm a year younger than Rick. He was, he was one of the best guys out there. It was really you and Galvin and, uh, and Jay, um, Jay, Jay Lathrop. Um, Jay Lathrop. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's been so long. I'm, I'm trying, I couldn't remember his name, but I finally, I finally poked in there. I got in there for a second place at a place called Bosque Skiria. And after the races, everybody at the lodge, we'd go and meet in one part of the lodge and they'd pass out the, the trophies and stuff. And I'm waiting, you know, like this is this, I'm 10 years old. This is super exciting. Rick is a, a wizened 11 year old at this point. And he comes up to me and says, hey, you've got to go to the back of the room. And I was like, what do you mean? I've got to go to the back of the room. And he said, you got to go to the back of the room because then they have to clap for you the whole time when you go to the front. <laughs> it's true it's sage advice chris you got to milk it you know because those moments were fleeting so you had to milk it for every second i I recognize that at age 11 i might not have ever been there again (laughs) and what was actually even funnier for me was that i went to one of your shows 
and I mentioned that story to you. Do you remember what you yeah. said to me when I mentioned that story to you? No, no. <laughs> you said it. What I say? You said, I don't remember that, but it sounds like me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was a little, I was a little cocky shit. You know what I mean? Uh, you know. I watched the, the Tiger Woods documentary on HBO Go. I just saw it last night, or HBO Max, I think it was. And it reminded me a lot of kind of our childhood because my dad was very, it's not that I didn't love skiing. I loved every single part of it. But I had one of those stage mom dads. Can you say that? Yeah, it's progressive, right? He'd be a stage and, uh, dad. He, yeah. yeah. Stage dad. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, so I literally, my earliest memories involve skis being on my feet. You know, in the backyard when I was two years old, we, I don't remember it, of course, but we have home videos of my dad pulling me around like with a rope and I'm on skis and, you know, at age two, I can barely walk. So, um, yeah, by the time I was 11, I was, I was a seasoned veteran and, uh, you know, I'd probably, uh, podiumed, uh, <laughs> you know, a half a dozen times at that point. So, you know, I knew the ropes. Yeah, and you got to milk it. <laughs> you knew what you were doing. And your dad was was a ski instructor, right? Was he a coach too, or was he just an instructor? Or? No, he was just a ski instructor um, because it, he loved skiing. He was a school teacher in real life, but uh, becoming a ski instructor on weekends, you got a free pass for the whole family. So it was a way that we all could ski. Brody Mountain was oh, yeah. uh, was my. Uh, yeah, the, the place that had the infamous green beer on uh, St. Patty's Day. Kelly's Irish Alps, yeah. Kelly's Irish Alps, yeah, 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 yeah. And you podiumed at uh, Bosque, home of uh, Heidi Volker. Heidi Volker and the Smittingers, exactly. Isn't it amazing that, that three Olympic athletes came out of probably the smallest ski area, at least in New England, if not the United States? That is, that is the mind boggling part of it, isn't it? Because you get these tiny little areas and you think, oh, well, you've got to be from the Alps or you've got to be from, you know, from Colorado, you've got to be from Utah or California or like right. big mountains. And we just got a lot of laps on a tiny little, yeah. and most of them were really flat too. I mean, there, was, there right. wasn't much of a pitch. That was the funny thing, Brody, where you grew up, I skied there. So I did a race at Mount Tom when I was six but I wasn't really in it. I didn't have the license. And, and actually that race, we looked at the finish from like two gates up or whatever, the whole team looked at it, you know, and I'm just a little kid and the coach is like, okay, you want to point this way and do this. I'd never seen the die across the oh. finish, you know, so yeah. they put the die in between yeah. the finish. And, and to me, it looked like, it looked like there was a rope, across the finish so i finished and and i didn't actually go to the finish i went around the finish because i didn't want to run into the rope you don't want to clothesline yourself right? <laughs> and i was probably small oh, enough that that if it had been a rope i would have gone right underneath it so my first race was actually my first official race was at brody was the gs at brody but right that was also the first college race that I did in a monoski after my accident. Oh, no way. The Williams Carnival was the exact, I mean, not the same set, obviously, but the same yeah, course, yeah. the same start and the same finish. And, but you got- Did you, you go through the, the, did you go through the finish line that time? 
I think I, I think I went through the finish line. I was going so I was going probably about the same speed that I was going as a seven-year-old, and I was worried about wow. you know killing myself really. But you got you got really good. You went from Kelly's Irish Alps up to Stratton, and yeah. I mean you were one of the top juniors in the country, right? I mean tell us tell because yeah. the thing is you're you're a comic now. People probably don't know that you okay. had a life before you were a comic. How good a skier were you? No. <laughs> no, you didn't know You know, it was, uh, again, it, it was kind of like, I didn't know that I was funny. Well, I didn't know that I was. What happened? Oh, I think we're good. Seems like right. it's frozen. Is it frozen? Can you see me? Nope. Yeah, I got you now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It just, so, it just froze. So, so, but you were, you were a really good skier before you were a comedian. How oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I never, no one has ever confirmed that I've been a really good comedian, but- uh, We'll get to I, that one later. We'll get to that one later. I, I, I was a really, really good skier, but again, it was because I started when I was so young, I didn't know any better. I was more comfortable on skis than I was walking around in a parking lot with ski boots or, or on a tennis court or anywhere else. And because you nailed it with the small areas that we grew up in, the repetition. It's just like when you're, you're any sport that you do, it's repetition. Baseball, you just take cut after cut, golf, swing, swing, tennis, hit, hit. We just kept going up and down, up and down. We're getting thousands of runs in a day where the people at uh, Squaw Valley, you know, they're getting six runs in because it's, you know, a thousand miles long. And, uh, and we also skied on bulletproof man-made snow, which was hard. It was like a skating rink, you know, and and so we had we had ruts and you know so it made you a much better skier so by the time we got out to the west coast where it's all packed powder you know it's it's hero snow that's why we got to be so good out here like you know basically chris the reason all of us got so good at skiing it was like rocky uh what was it rocky four where he trained in russia mm-hmm yep you okay. remember that movie? I'm interested to Running see where this is going. Yep. With an ox car and, uh, <laughs> oh no, I'm not making a colluding with Russia link. No. <laughs> I'm, just, <laughs> I'm staying away from politics. I'm just saying it was like Rocky training in Russia, you know. With, with the telephone the fair, pole on his, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was minimalist, absolute minimalist. And it made us animals. It just made us, uh, you know, very, very hungry and aggressive. And, you know, oh, we're going to go up there to Vermont and we're going to kick their ass. And <laughs> but then you went up to Vermont. Up. And, yeah. and so many of the skiers, so many of the good skiers at that point, so a lot of the best racers were based in Vermont or going to school. Like you went to a ski academy, right? You went to Stratton or yeah. went to Burke, a mountain academy. Start, yeah, first, and, then, and then went to Stratton. I went to Burke and then I transferred to Stratton. Um, my good buddy, Scott Lyons, who used to be on the US ski team. You remember Scott? Oh yeah. He likes to tell people, he likes to tell people I was kicked out, which is a better story. It sells better, but the re <laughs> it's funnier that way. But the reality is, is I, I, I transferred to uh, Stratton because one of my best friends, Barry Galvin was at Stratton. And quite frankly, the girls were a lot prettier. And so when you're 16 years old, that factors in. Oh, is that but, why you uh, became, became a ski racer for the girls? Is that why you became a comedian <laughs> as well? 
that's why I stuck it out so long, but that's not why I became a ski racer. <laughs> okay. But it, it, it was, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Tell us how good you were though. I mean, I want to know. I mean, like you were, cause Galvin was the best guy in, he was the in best. your age group. He, he was, he was the best uh, once we got to high school, but he and I, if you remember, we were, we were neck and neck. We were, oh, yeah. you know, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, you know, I win, he wins. I win, he win. Um, I, at the uh, junior Olympics in 1981, God dating ourselves here. Um, I came in uh, uh, second in the slalom third overall. And uh, so I got the, I got the medal and, you know, the overall it was uh, Lowry Sullivan and Mark Fana for the other, other two. I think Galvin will end up being six. I mean, you know, I made the junior Olympics every year, the U S nationals, the NORAMs, um, you know, that, that type of thing. I mean, I, here, here's the interesting thing. I was, I was good, but I wasn't, I wasn't great at the, the highest ranking I ever got, I think was like 17th in slalom and like 32nd in giant slalom national. Right. You know, with the points ranking. Now that's not good enough. That's not even close to making the Olympic team. But if I was the 17th best baseball player in America, you would know exactly who I am. People would have posters. Kids would have posters on their wall and I'd be making millions of dollars a year. But if you're 17th or 30th best ski racer in the country, you're, you're solid, but you're not, you know, you got to do something else. You're not going to be. Do you guys have any, any, any comedy ski races? Do you get to throw down occasionally with uh, with all the comedians? Oh gosh, no. The, the, the closest, you know, ski racing is still, I guess, and I hate to use this word, especially in today's uh, the parlance of our times, as the dude would uh, say in Lebowski. Uh, it's still fairly an elitist sport, so you're not going to get a lot of uh, celebrity ski. Like Heidi hosts that celebrity ski event. Right. Every year at Park City or Deer Valley or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. I don't even know. Have you? So, but no, I, they, they, most comedians are not coordinated at all in terms of sports. I, I literally, I'm not trying to shit on uh, my peers and my profession, but I would say that 75% of them are not athletic at all. Uh, they live vampire hours, which I do, you know, occasionally. Um, a lot of them don't even like sports. So there's a, a smaller percentage, 25%, you know, that still has, you know, their eye on, on, on the prize in terms of uh, sports actually gets out and does stuff. But comedians are more, uh, you know, nocturnal creatures who eat dinner after shows. So you go to Denny's at midnight or one o'clock in the morning, and then you drink beer and you stay up until 6am and then you sleep all day. I mean, but it, it's, it, you know, again, I think we still get the same eight hours of sleep that most Americans do who have, have day jobs are just our job is at night. And so you really have to focus your energy. And I know it sounds weird. It's, it's not a physical activity, but mentally you have to be in the zone, just like you are with any sport, just like we are standing in the starting gate when you're ski racing, the rest of the world doesn't exist. It's just you in that bubble and you have that course memorized and you know where you're going to set up wide and where you're going to come in early and you're going to pre-jump so you don't get too much air like you did at Sugarloaf. We'll talk about that in the <laughs> Junior Olympics. <laughs> um, so you need to have that focus and concentration as a comedian, now more so than ever, because of the political climate out there. Uh, so you need to focus your day. You can't get up at eight o'clock in the morning because by nine o'clock at night, when you have to be on stage, you're wiped out, you're burnt. 
So a lot of people are like, oh, you're lazy. You sleep till noon. You sleep till one. Yeah, but I have a night job. A lot of times, like on a Friday or Saturday night, you know, you're doing three shows. You know, you're doing 7.30, 9.30, 10.30. Sometimes, a lot of times in Vegas, where I live now, uh, I would do 11 o'clock or, or midnight shows. You're not getting home till two o'clock in the morning. And it's not like you can walk in the door after this adrenaline rush and just lie down and go to sleep, you know? No, that's got to be, I mean, that's where you ended. And that was something that, that I was interested in is how do you, how do you unwind and how do you come off stage? Cause it is like, especially when things go well, right? Things go well. It, it's like nothing better. People are laughing. They're laughing in all the right places. You're like, I am killing it. This is awesome. And then you go off stage and yeah. you're alone. Right. You yes. know, and like, and you hit that crash I mean, how does it, how does it work for you? I know how it works for me. Like I speak a lot and, and it used to right, be, right. I would finish speaking and people would come up to the stage and they'd want to do questions. You know, they want to ask me questions. And I was like, look, I gave you everything I have. I, I, I'm done. Right. I'm, I, I'm done. I've got to go. I've got to go recharge. How is it? How is it? How does it work for you? What's, what's that like? It, it, well, I, I'm sure it's very, very similar, if not identical to, to, to you. You give everything on that stage. And, uh, you know, pre-COVID, you had to do the meet and greets after every show. Um, because I'm not like at, you know, a Bill Burr level where you can just have security escort you to your hotel room. I'm at that lower level where I have to, you know, go out and try to sell books or CDs or T-shirts and, you know, shake hands, kiss babies type of thing. And, uh People want you to still be on all the time. And nine times out of 10, you, you know, people, hey, you were very funny. Have you heard this joke? And they tell you a joke or try this in your routine. And they're street jokes. They're like old jokes. And they're usually ridiculously racist or inappropriate. <laughs> and you have to fake a laugh. Right. Yeah, exactly. You fake a laugh. You're like, oh, yeah, that was oh, that was great. I would use that. But I, I you know, I try not to use the N word in my set. <laughs> you know what I mean, like you want, you want to be nice to everybody, but sometimes they're very inappropriate. And a lot of people don't understand that we write our own material. If, you know, obviously, there's exceptions. You've heard of, you know, thievery out there. But uh, a comedy purist, you write your own stuff. So when people are saying, Hey, did you hear the one about the uh, two Irishmen and the Catholic who walked into the, you're like, yeah, that's an old joke, but you can't let them know that. Cause they just paid money to see you. So you, you sit and you do a lot of fake nodding and, Oh, that was wonderful. That's so funny. Yeah. Here's my phone number. How come there's only four digits? Well, Oh yeah. I'm in between numbers. So yeah, there's a lot of that. And then, but there are, there are times, you know, like, and I, I will name drop again. Like I, I've opened for Bill Burr a lot. I'm, I'm doing a theater show for 10,000 people. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just his support. I'm just like his opening act, but still after the show, I will go out and meet people and everyone's like, Oh, you're a rock star. You're right. And then two hours later, I'm up in my hotel room in boxer shorts and a t-shirt watching sports center, you know, by myself texting my, my then girlfriend, you know, my, my now wife. And, uh, yeah, it's lonely. It's very lonely. And you, when you have a really good show, it is, it's very difficult to come down because of the adrenaline rush. It, it, it's, it creates that endorphin that you just, it gives you a natural, a natural high, which is why a lot of entertainers probably, you know, 
self-medicate with alcohol or, or edibles, you know, to try to, to try to come down. Right. That's from a really good show. Um, I don't remember my really good shows. Um, I'm fortunate that there's way, way more good shows than bad shows, but the bad shows, they, 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 they're on you like stink. I mean, they just, you know, you, now you're sitting in your hotel room alone and you're questioning why did, why are you doing this? You're not even good. This is horrible. They hated you. Or I went, I did this wrong. Just like a, a bad run in skiing in a very important race. You're like, I blew that one turn. It was that one turn. If I just set up a little bit early, but I, you know, and you can't get it out of your head. That's, that's really hard. Those are the nights that keep you up all night long. So and, 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 and you wait, you, oh, sorry, go ahead. No. So the bad nights are, do you feel that after the good nights? Like, I mean, I've had, like, I've been on stage and, and, and sometimes I don't even know, like some of my stuff is like, you know, like I am so jealous that you're funny. Cause I would, I would so love to, to be funny in front of the group. And some of my stuff is a little cerebral and I've had, I mean, I'm, I had one in San Diego where I was like, I am dying up here. I'm just dying up here. And then I finished and they gave me a standing ovation and I went, okay, so I guess I wasn't dying up there, you know, like wow. this is a good thing, but I yeah. get that. I get that crash afterwards. I mean, even it's like the right. build up the adrenaline build up to the performance. And then afterwards, yeah. you're like, you're like, okay, that was good. And then it's like, ah, oh, you know, like I, I, I miss that energy, the audience energy. I miss right. hopefully laughing. I mean, I'll, I'll get a laugh occasionally every once in a while. Usually when I, it's when I do something stupid, but, but, but for you, it, it really is the bad shows that stick with you where you get that crash. You don't get that crash after the good shows, after the good shows, you're like, I'm on top, I'm killing it. You know, let's, let's, yeah. let's tee up another one right now. I'm ready to go. It, yes, exactly. You don't, you don't want it to end a good set. Let's ju I'll just say this, the standard 45 minute set is, is generally when you, you're headlining set um, a really good show. It, it feels like you just got on stage by the time you have to wrap up. It feels like five minutes, seven minutes. It just goes by like that. And I can't even tell you how many times I walk off stage and I don't remember what I said because you were in the zone, just like you are with, 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 with sports, you know, Michael Jordan probably couldn't tell you exactly how he did what he did. He just did it. Cause he's in that zone. I, I a lot of times, especially when you're riffing, you know, you have set material that you want to get to um, during your show, but riffing occurs or someone will heckle you. And all of a sudden you're in that moment. And I I've literally, I've had pockets of 10, 15 minutes in a row where it's just everything I'm saying is working. I walk off stage. I can't tell you one word I said. I don't remember anything. It's it's just, it's gone. It's out into the ether somehow. It's but like, yeah, that bad show, I'll go over that bad show forever and ever and ever. Listen, Tom Brady has won six Super Bowls. He's been in nine Super Bowls. And when you see him interviewed, he still talks about the losses. He talks about that one, you know, the, the two losses to the Giants. He, he's the winningest quarterback of all time, but he still has, because you remember that pain because you don't ever want to go back to where that, that pain was. So you dissect it and you, and a lot of times, especially in, in, in something like comedy where it's subjective, it's beyond your control. Sometimes the crowd, it's a late show on a Friday night and they're super drunk 
you know, uh, they worked all week long, they're tired and, you know, it's 11 o'clock on a Friday night and, and, or there's a sorority party of drunk girls in the front row drinking out of penis straws and waving sex toys and all, they just want all the attention. So you give them a little bit of attention to shut them up. You alienate the rest of the crowd. It's pandemonium, it's bedlam. Sometimes you just set up to fail and, but you still wear that. You wear that on your sleeve and it's, it's really hard to overcome that, you know? Just like a loss in ski racing or sports. Well, it's, it's the same. It's this, the same thing. It really is. You asked me on the phone yesterday, is there uh, like mental similarities between ski racing and, and stand-up comedy? It's the exact same thing. It's getting out of your own way and not thinking. Like, you, you know, you've competed way more than I have at this point. So you probably have some of your best best moments your best competitions when you're out of your head you're just you again you're in, i hate to you're in that zone well it's it's the hope but if you overthink it yeah what's that well it's the hope and and it's funny and this is i, I can see this is this is an interview we're going we're going all over the place on this one so so i apologize to the to the okay. audience right now that the structure of this is going to be out the door but i'm going to unpack some of this stuff <laughs> i want to get because you're talking about you're talking about the zone you're talking about being out of your head how, yeah. how do you try to get there because you because it doesn't i mean it, it it sort of seems like it just happens in some ways but it takes a lot of work to get yes. in order in order to have <laughs> things work out. Like, like for me in ski racing, one of the things that I tried to convince myself, and I had a lot of experience in this, was that I had made a mistake before I went through the starting gate. So, so then I lost all of the expectations, right? I mean, sometimes it's like, you're, you're a little bit tight because of the expectations. Like, I don't wanna lose this opportunity. And then invariably you do something stupid. And so, right. so I've done something stupid a lot of times and then had like, you know, then you go and win the bottom, the bottom half of the course or something. And it's like, oh, well, I should have done that from the start. And so my, my trigger in a lot of ways was to say, okay, I've already made a mistake. It's all out the window. Like go at yeah. it. Like just, just go at it. You have nothing to lose. What do you, yeah. what do you do in terms of preparation? Cause it's not like, because part of it, like for the audience, it's, it's often we look at you guys and go, well, they're just funny. It's just one of those yeah. things. And, and it's organic too, right? You've practiced it enough that it looks like you're just making stuff up as you go. I mean, that's, that's the objective. You're not like, okay, I'm going to go to joke B now. Right. And, you know, but it, but it looks like there's that, but what do you have to do in order to get to that point where you can be in the zone? Well, uh, there, I, I don't know. I'm probably misquoting, but there's something. The only way to get great is to put in ten thousand hours. Have you heard that? This is the Malcolm anything, Gladwell anything, thing. Yeah, the the outlier. Anything ten thousand hours. So so it just it, it it it's rote at that point. It it's it's you just it, it's just it's just in you. Um, so that that's in terms of of the, the the comfort level and 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 going through the mechanics of what you're doing on stage. But to get into that zone. Um, a lot of time, like the, the, the greats seem to do it all the time. Like your Michael Jordans or your, your Tiger Woods, but, uh, you know, guys at my level, you know, it's, it's hit or miss. It's, uh, like, like golf. There've been times where I'm having the best golf game of my life. And so then I add up, I start adding up my score. 
going, oh, you know what? If I par this hole and par that hole, I'm going to finish. And that's when you start shanking them into the woods. Soon as you start thinking. Yeah. And uh, or um, here's a better analogy. When you're a teenage boy, when you're in high school, uh -oh. you have a crush on a girl. Uh -huh. But the, but the key is you can't let the girl know that you like her. You have to come off as being aloof and cool. You have to kind of be a little bit of a dick because women like the bad boys. But you really like this girl, but you have to treat her like shit to get her to like you. So, but you're, you're coming across as a dick, even though you're really not. So you're just playing these mind games when it, you, that's in high school when, but the reality is, is you just have to be yourself. And if they like you, they like you. And if they don't, they don't, then you're not for them. That's how you have to approach it. You just have to be yourself. And a lot of times it's hard to be yourself because not everyone likes their own skin. And so I, I wish I had a formula. I wish I could give you a better answer, Chris, but getting to that place is getting out of your own way and just not thinking, not caring. Bill Burke told me, uh, it, it, he, he's a very good friend of mine. He and I start, started out together. His comedy went next level when he stopped giving a crap about anything. Doesn't mean you don't care. You still want to have a good show, but you don't care what the audience thinks. You don't know them personally. You're just, you're there just for you. And I, and I look at that and had, had I had that kind of attitude back when I was ski racing, I think I would have been a lot more successful if I had more fun and I just went out there and raced. But, you know, we were so intense when we were young and I got to win and I got to make this and I got to make, you know, I have to make the Olympics and I got to, so it's hard to stay out of your own way. It's hard to stay out of your own way, but you do. I mean, it's, it's been a long road as well, right? I mean, do you start because yeah. how do you how do you write a joke? I mean, this is one of those things that people don't realize how you they, that you actually write your own jokes. How do you how do yeah. you write a joke? What's the creative process for you? It's uh, uh, it, it's a little bit different for for everyone else. Sure. Um, but for me. Uh, and, and this is similar with a lot of my peers is we reverse engineer it. You say something or you think of something really funny. And then in your head, you go, oh, wait, that could be a joke. I got to write that down or I got to put that into my phone. How do I get, how do I get to that? Okay. Um, so you start so with the I like effectively. So you start with the, yeah, pump. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, like, uh, here, here's an example. I'll, I'll, I'll. The joke won't work now because I'll tell you the joke and I'll tell you how I got there. Okay. I go, um, I just, uh, I just got this wedding ring, and then everyone in the audience will clap, and I'll go, yeah, I also got the guy's watch and I got his wallet, and uh, I pawned those, but I kept the ring. So that's a nice, tight little joke, and uh, it literally, it literally just. <laughs> It just came from like, oh, I, I just got married. You know, I, I have to do uh, wedding, wedding jokes right now. And I was holding the ring like this. I was sitting up with my wife and I go, I wonder how much I could get for this if I pawned it. Cause it's like, it's brand new. And, uh, and then she's like, uh, knowing you, you probably would steal it, right? And then I was like, yeah, well I would mug a guy for a ring. And then I was like, oh wait, there's something there. There's something there. Reverse engineer, sit down, and now you structure it. Okay, I got the wedding ring. I know I'm going to get a, a cheap applause break because people, are, you know, you get the acknowledgement of a compliment. I'm on oh, your side. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I just quit drinking. Oh, that's good. Hey, give it up for the troops. Yeah, that's, you know. 
so you do some of those. I would go, you know, I, uh, I just, uh, I just got back from uh, Iraq and then people would, you know, clap and I'd go, Oh no, I just, uh, uh, wasn't a military thing. It was a vacation. I booked through Priceline and that's, that's where they routed me like something, something like that. So it, it, it's the process for me anyway, is, is a funny thought that's out there. How do I structure it? Let's reverse engineer it like area 51 and come up with something good. And then the longer stories, um, a, a lot of my bits, you've seen me on stage. A lot of my bits are three to five to six minutes long. And so that is a lot of trial and error. I know the, sh the shell of the, the bit, but when I'm on stage, I'm going to allow myself just to riff and just see where it goes and see what works and what doesn't. And so it's a lot of trial and error. Well, that's you what know? they talk about with comedians where comedians go out and they try out their new stuff. And, and you look at some of these big people, like I've heard people say, oh, well, Robin Williams showed up at this, at this little bar and he was, yeah. and he was awful, you know, and yeah. you're like, and you're like, yeah, because that's, that's part of the process. You have to do this out loud. Right. I mean, I'm sure you can, you can go talk to your mirror in your bathroom, but right. Which is yeah. a tough audience, obviously, <laughs> but, but you got to try this stuff out and see how it works. And I saw something with Jamie Foxx where he was saying that he does like his, like his, his blackest stuff in like the country clubs. Right. And he yeah. does, you know, his political stuff in his black clubs and, you know, and like goes totally against the grain because he figures if it works there, then right. I know yeah. it works. Yeah. But you've done, so so you started in Boston, right? You started with your with the comedy in Boston, and and yeah. is that like just starting open mic night, where you just where you just show up and yeah. pay, put your name on the list? Did you have to pay? I've actually done this a couple of times. I've told you I've done it. I'm not good, but I've done it. It scares me to death. But I think the first, at least a few times, I had to pay. I think five bucks. Really? Wow. Get on stage yeah. and embarrass myself for three minutes. Did you have to do that? Uh, I have not, I never actually had to hand over money myself, but what they used to do in Boston is you had to bring a certain amount of paid people or else you can't go on stage. Like, uh, literally I remember this one story and I, I don't want to, sometimes I don't want to use names cause I don't want to, you know, embarrass them. But there, there was a well-known booker at the time in Boston had this club that everyone was trying to get into. And us new comics, the open micers, had to bring 10 paid people. I had eight. I had eight people who came down, paid the admission, the cover charge, and he wouldn't let me on stage because I didn't have 10. And so I said, can I pay the other two? And so like, I did. I, pay, I paid for the other two people who, who weren't there just so I could get on stage. And by the time I got up on stage that night, he had already left the club a half hour early. And I was just there to audition for him. So, you know, um, but yeah, you had to do things like that. You had to bring paid, they were called bringer shows. You had to bring, you, you know, you had to bring the audience. So I had to do, I had to do a lot of that. And um, yeah, that, I mean, you, you cut your teeth. It takes a long, I mean, you don't come right out of the gate, start getting paid work. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I had a day job. There was one comic that I started out with. And again, I'm name dropping only because my freshman class in Boston, there were some real heavy hitters to went on to become pretty huge. And I would say the, the one uh, who, who shot, 
who shot the fame the quickest was Dane Cook. Mm-hmm. He never seemed to have that awkward open mic period where he was still looking at his notes or trying, you know, he just, he came out, he was on fire. It, he was, he, he was like a seasoned pro when he was 18 years old. And I don't know what he had done prior. I know he had done some acting and some improv groups, but he, he was next level right, right from the get-go. And you all knew it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right, right away. Literally like he, cause he had that it factor. He had that thing. And also uh, he started, you know, when he was so young, like I said, acting and improv when he was in high school, he was fearless. He was absolutely fearless. He was a guy, he was prepared, but he never, he never thought anything, but I'm the funniest guy in this room. He knew that right away. And he just went up and, and did it. And he, it was, it was remarkable to watch. It was remarkable to watch this kid. And then he just blew up and got huge. And, and this is no disrespect to him, but a lot of people say this about bands. You like their earlier stuff, you know what I mean? Uh, and then once you get super rich and famous, you know, you probably soften the edge a little bit because you have yes men all around you going, you're so funny, you're, you know, but his early stuff, literally I'd be in tears laughing. It was, and then there, there were several times I'd be watching Dane laughing so hard that my stomach hurt. And then I had, would have to go up next. <laughs> <laughs> I ate my dick so many times behind Dane. I can't even, I can't even tell you how many times. I'd still be laughing, thinking about what he did. And then I'd be up there going, oh yeah, now here's my stupid stuff. <laughs> it's like the exact opposite, but it's kind of like in ski racing when you're running downhill and the helicopter comes in to take somebody out, right? They've just crashed yeah. the helicopter. Has to go. <laughs> and, and it's like, all right, it's your time to go. And you're like, I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to feel good. I'm I'm ready to go. I'm ready. We're going to get after it right now. So what's (laughs) you're seeing someone airlifted dangling from the helicopter, like the guy in Scarface when they pushed him out. You know, you ready to go? Oh, okay. (laughs) Let me just get focused for a moment. Okay. Yep. Ready to go. Ready to go. Is, is there another helicopter around just in case? You know, just in case we need another one. What do you, what is that fear like? And and is the fear, was it worse when you first started? Or is it oh yeah? Yeah. And and does it come and go though, too? Oh yeah, it still does. No, no matter what level you're at, even even the big, big, big guys will still bomb. Again, you know, when you're trying out new material and you you still have that feeling. There's, it, it's, it's, you can, you can develop an immunity to uh, physical and emotional pain to a degree. You can only numb yourself so much. Bombing hurts. It hurts no, no matter what. Time slows down. I mean, it's personal when you bomb. It's It's you You failed. You are a failure is what it comes down to, right? Every, every single comic, I don't care who they are. Is, is has insecurities look we all have insecurities and, and and when you're killing when you're just in that moment where the crowd is eating up every single thing that you say in my head i'm like oh what a great crowd i'm not giving myself credit for whatever reason i'm like these guys are awesome i love this i wish this group would follow me around the country and then the next night you're doing the same routine and you're eating it you're bombing and you're just like oh i suck i why did i get into this i should have gone into mortgage banking i there's why you know what i I, you know i'm gonna go home and and you know drink two bottles of wine and have some ambient and anna nicole smith my way out of this and uh, so 
I don't, you take the bombing personally, but you take the crushing, you credit the audience. I, it's a weird, it's a weird, I don't, I don't, understand, I don't understand the mind of comedians. When I am that? one feel like when you get on stage what does that fear feel like and how do you get over that fear because the thing is you can't project fear to the audience or else oh right right right. live right so how do you get what does the fear feel like and what what do you do to get over it that you get out there and you're like oh i'm in charge you know i think i would liken it to jumping out of an airplane i don't know if you've ever gone skydiving i i have a handful of times it's uh looking out, looking out of that airplane. And you're like, wait, I'm going to be out there in a minute. What am I doing? What am I doing? This is crazy. Especially if, um, you know, when you're, when you're going first in comedy, you just don't know you're, you're jumping out of that airplane first. But if you've seen a couple guys go on before you and it's a really tough crowd and they're not buying anything, you know, not only are you jumping out of that airplane, but you're jumping out in Vietnam at night <laughs> and people are shooting at you on the way down. <laughs> so you're like, Oh my God, I'm probably going to die. That fear is, is palpable. Chris, you can take your, your pulse without touching yourself. Cause your heart is, Oh my God, I have to, you know, it sounds like the helicopter, you know, it's, it's, it's awful. And again, how do you get over it? You never, you never get over it, but you learn to manage it through repetition, through just doing it, you know, once, once you've jumped out of the airplane 10,000 times, you know, you're like, all right, well, maybe I'll get shot this time and maybe I won't, but I'm jumping out of the plane. Right. You know, what the, you know, you know, the danger is there, but you also know that you've lived through it a million other times before you're going to live through it again. You're going to live through it again. And it's, it's funny. Like I, I have to look at that because I mean, it's the same thing and it's the same thing like with ski racing where, like I do some of these little fundraisers, which is like, a, which are like NASTAR courses and they're like corporate fundraisers or whatever, you know, I mean, just, just fun things. I'm still nervous before those races, before those little races and people, you can't be nervous for this. Like, this is nothing. And I'm like, no, it, it matters. It still matters to me. And it matters to you right. every time you go on stage. And, and so yeah. So that's the, that's the hard part. Like for me, when, when I speak, I try to, I try to hit it hard, like right at the beginning, you know, there are a lot of people who are like, Oh, thanks so much for coming here. You know, and you guys are great and this and that. And it's a nice little soft up, but I try to go out and like say something right away. And I'm like, Oh shit. You know, this is like the, the, I've made a mistake kind of thing in ski racing. Like if I say it, I'm like, I got to now back that up. Like I've just made a comment. And, and, and I've got to back that up. Like I, I did something at one point, it was like some, some like, it was actually, I mean, it sounds, it sounds impressive. It's probably not as impressive as it sounds. It was something at like the UN and it was, ta- we we're talking about like, like chronic disease kind of stuff. And I was sort of there talking about something. I don't remember exactly what I was talking about, but, but I got on stage and I was like, you know what? I don't have the luxury of getting out of shape. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because for me, it's like, I've got to, I'm getting around with my arms. And if I get out of shape, you know, if I add 20, 30 pounds, like getting from my chair into my car is really hard. So then eventually I just don't go anywhere. So, so I really don't have that luxury, but I felt like I had to hit it hard and then you have to, to back it up. Like people actually listen to you. And so, and that for me is kind of the way that I get over it. I'm like, Oh, I'm in it now as opposed to like kind of dipping your toe. It's like the, 
diving into the pool versus dipping your toe into the pool. Right. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, you know, it was funny. You're doing this at the UN <laughs> and you've been to the White House. Okay. You have done this in front of presidents of the United States and you're picking my brain, a guy who works at like Uncle Fester's Chuckle Hut and <laughs> Mud Whistle Falls, Idaho. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, even you and I, but it's the same mindset, you know what I mean? Because no matter where you are, no matter how big the venue, how small the venue, you want to always do your personal best. Yeah. Right? You want to give your absolute best performance no matter what. So no matter where you are, what level, it's the same mindset, I think. I have much easier audiences oftentimes yeah. than you do. You yeah. Know, like, I mean, you go- you Well, because you use that- you. You, you use that wheelchair and you got the prop, you know what I mean? So you automatically get the sympathy. <laughs> it was a strategic decision. <laughs> I've got another one in the garage if you want it. Can, can I tell your viewers a quick little story about us? Sure. Uh, when uh, I remember when it, it, it was, you know, it, it was weird after the accident first happened to you. And because not, a lot of us didn't know how to, how to act and being young and ignorant, it's almost like we talked to you like you were suddenly a foreigner and couldn't speak English. Are you okay, Chris? And I, <laughs> I remember, I remember one, one time, um, I was, I, I offered to help you get in the car, and I was like, "Hey, buddy, can I please help you get in the car?" And you're like, "Yeah, I would normally let you, but I'm kind of in a hurry, so <laughs> let me do it." <laughs> I was like, "Oh, you asshole! All right, you're still the same. You're still the same, Chris." And uh, so. <laughs> But it was weird. It was a weird. Do you remember that? You're like, no, I'm in a hurry. Let me do it. Because <laughs> like somehow, I, you know, we're trying so hard to accommodate you that we're acting different. And so that must have been a weird adjustment for you, for people like me who knew you from childhood. All of a sudden we're talking to you like, you know, English is a third language. Hi, Chris. Are you feeling good today? Can I get you some cocoa? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> well, you, it, totally, it, the, you totally over, nailed it because that is actually the hardest part. The hardest part is it, it's, it's the weird dynamic shift that like the guy lying in the hospital bed is really the person who has, has to put everybody else at ease. Yeah. Yeah. And the people come in and they're like, oh, I'm going to support you. Like I'm here. We still love you. You know, like, like your life hasn't changed. Everything's good. And, and I'm looking at it going, everything has changed. What do you mean? Like, I've got to put you at ease. That's that weird, like dynamic shift that you go, oh, yeah. huh. huh. I'm responsible for how I interact with people. And so it's, it's a wild deal, but, uh, but which, which is funny. This is so what's the hardest crowd? that you've, or hardest place, you know, you're looking at, like I was, I was listening to something and Jay Leno was talking about how when he was coming up, he was playing in Boston and he played a strip club in the combat oh, yeah. zone. You know, sure. and he's, he's like, nobody wants to listen to anything funny, but it's kind of, yeah. kind of like, it's kind of like your initiation. It's kind of like, you know, creating your chops, right? I mean, this is, this is it where you pay, play these places that they don't, they don't care about you at all. They don't want to hear you, but you still have to yeah. go up there and do it. What, what's been the toughest one? Does this stick in your head? 
I mean, there's so many, I wouldn't know where to begin, but I'll address the strip club thing because I know where Jay performed at. It was Jacques in the combat zone in Boston. I have performed there. Uh, and it later became like a, a, a transvestite bar. I've done, I've done, I've done plenty of shows there. Yeah. They don't want to pay attention to you at all. I've done, and this is a real name. Uh, it's going to sound like I'm making it up. I performed several times at the golden banana. Oh yeah. I know the golden banana. It's right. I, I turned right to go up to New Hampshire from the airport. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you land in Logan, you see some titties and then you go up to Maine and get some lobster. Bingo. Bob's your uncle. So I, <laughs> I have performed there when there you go to a strip club or dance club for one reason and one reason only, and it's not stand-up comedy. So, but you have to cut your teeth again. It's Rocky in Russia. You do this training. It's a training exercise. It's, it's a Navy SEAL boot camp type of thing. You know, going into it, it's going to be awful, but you still, it's also like rehearsal. It, you, you learn more from, uh, and I, I do believe, again, the crossover between my job and, and, and uh, sports and, and your job, is, it's the same. You, you learn way more from failure than you do from success. You really, you gotta be so willing you, to you fail. bomb and you- Right. You got to yeah, be willing to, have to be throw it out there. And yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one of, and, 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 and I'm not one of these middle-aged comics that go, oh, kids today. I'm not, I'm really not trying to do that. But because we are in a society where everything is now, 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 I see a lot of newer comedians coming up. They've done it for a year or six months. They already have a, they've never had a paid gig, but their business card says professional comedian. You're like, what the hell? And they're like, I, I, where's my Netflix special? And it's like, you little shit, you put, put the time in, put the time in, then come back and see where you are. You can tell if you're a veteran comedian, you can pretty much tell how long someone has been doing comedy by their first 30 seconds or 15, just by the way they go and approach the microphone. I, I can tell if someone is new or not. Like you said, there are guys that will come out there and go like, Hey, how you doing? How, how's it going? Hey, how about a round of applause for the wait staff? You know what I mean? Like the, it, or they're just nervous fumbling with the mic or uh, so what else is going on? You can just tell body language. Are they new or are they not? You said you'd like to come out and hit them. I, I, guys like George Carlin and Louis C.K., who unfortunately is on that cancel list, Bill Burr, there's a lot of comics, Chris Rock, that come out, they don't say, hi, how you doing? They don't fluff the audience. Louis C.K. opened a special once. He walks out on stage and he goes, the thing about abortion. <laughs> it's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, wait, what? You're going there already? You haven't even fluffed us, <laughs> but that's, that's ballsy. Chris Rock used to open with his closing joke a lot of times because your closing joke is that's your moment. That's your big, Hey, thank you guys. Good night. And that's where they go wild. Well, if you open with your closing joke, now you have to follow yourself. If that makes sense at all, you have to get the rest of your show up to that level of that first first joke. Dave Chappelle talked about doing, doing the same thing, not in their comedy specials, not when they're on Netflix, but when they're warm or not. No, when you're, you're out work, on the road, working yeah. out your material, you open with your strongest stuff. That way the audience is like, Oh my God, you're amazing. Now, you know, in your head, what you have to say after that isn't as strong as that, but you have to do what you can to get up to that level. And, and some yeah. of the, 
is there a part of it where you're kind of keeping yourself honest in some ways? I mean, like Chris Rock, watching Chris Rock, his yeah. genius to me is that he says something to piss the audience off. Yes. He totally alienates the audience. You know, he's, I mean, it's like half women, right? And he's like, women are awful. I hate women, you know? And, and you're like, oh, this isn't going to end well. And then he just, it's almost like he issues that challenge to himself yeah. and then brings it back around. Yes. And, and yeah. makes it work. Like, like he's, he's jumped in, he's jumped in the deep end and yeah. How do you, you're, it's funny because you were talking about the people that you knew, that you know that they're not, they're, that they're brand new and they want their Netflix special. They're brand new. They've never done anything. When did you know that you were actually a comedian? Like that this could be your career? Oh boy, that's, that's a, I should have prepared. I wish I knew that was coming, Chris. Um <laughs> I mean, when did I know? I mean, I, you know, I started getting paid gigs and you know, when I reached a point where I was uh, making enough to s survive, barely survive. You're but paid I, I looked at like, what was I your six months ahead? What was What's your first paid gig? Were you, you know, when you say paid gigs, are you making like 25 bucks and in, in an order of French fries or what are you getting? You know, uh, yeah, it was, you know, 25, 50, 75. I meant a hundred. My first gig was, uh, my first paid gig was in, in Stowe, Vermont. And I was driving up from Boston. It was probably about a five or six hour trip in the snow. And I was getting paid $75. And they said, I only had to do 20 minutes of comedy. So in my head, 20 minutes, $75, that's $225 an hour. Yes, yeah, I'm in. But it was $75. So I had to take, not just one day off work. I had to take two days off work. And drive. Yeah. yeah. Drive all the way up there. They give you a hotel and they give you food. So then I'm like, oh, free hotel, free food, free beer. This is amazing. It, and, and so I made $75. It cost me like 300 or 400. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But in your head, you're like, I'm making money as a professional. And uh, you, you, quick funny story. I used, when, when I was, I went to U, UMass Amherst. As you remember, you were up at you were up at the good Ivy League school, Middlebury. I was at the state school, and they had comedy every Tuesday night at a place called the Blue Wall. And I would go down and just watch and laugh my butt off because comedy was huge in the '80s. That was back when it was really unfiltered. And nowadays, and we, we can get to this uh, later, but comedy is it's a different job than it was even ten years ago because of the political correctness climate and the woke and all that. But back in the 80s, you could say anything, do anything. And comedy was just out of control. And one day, I finally had the balls to approach a comedian and ask if I could just pick his brain. It was a guy named DJ Hazard, incredibly funny guy. And he said, he goes, uh, you, uh, as long as you keep buying me beer, I will keep answering your questions. And it was like, uh, remember back in college, way back then, they would serve beer in the plastic cups out of a keg. And it was literally like it was $2 a beer. So I'm like, yeah, I'll buy you beer. And one of the questions that I eventually worked up the courage to ask him is I said, I, how much money do you make as a comedian? And he goes, he puts his hand on my shoulder and he goes, son, trust me, you would not want to be in my tax bracket. And I took that as Oh my, he's one of the 1%. Yo, oh yes, I'm this is what I'm going to do. I can't wait. Cut to like six years later, I'm doing a gig with him in Holton, Maine, way north of Portland. 
it's a million miles away and I'm getting, a, I think 125 to open for him and he's getting like 200 and I'm, I'm driving and I'm like, I go, do you remember meeting me at, at UMass Amherst? You told me I wouldn't want to be in this tax bracket, you asshole. And he goes, I meant it. I said, <laughs> you wouldn't want to be in my tax bracket. He didn't lie. That's exactly what he meant. <laughs> so yeah, man, it, it takes a while till you can make a comfortable living. And, and you know, I've been very fortunate over the last five or six years prior to the COVID thing happening that I, I work very consistently. I'm not, I'm not a household name. I haven't gotten to that, you know, Bill Burr level, but uh, I'm in baseball. I'd be a five tool player. I can open middle close. I can go very, very corporate clean. I can go super dirty everywhere in between. I can put a nice suit on or I can, you know, dress like this. And so I get a lot of, I get a lot of work because you could plug me in wherever, wherever you need to plug me in. And, uh, um, was that so, the determining factor when, was that, that the determining factor of, of whether you could make a living doing this is that you were getting booked consistently. You might not be making a ton yeah. of money, right? But, right. but you could get booked consistently. I think you told me one time a few years ago that you worked like 40 months a year. Yeah. 40, 40, 40, 40 weeks, weeks a year. Yeah, 40 months yeah, yeah, a year. Yeah. It might feel like 40 months a year sometimes, <laughs> but yeah. You know, you know what's crazy is yeah, there was a time that I was doing like 40 to 45 weeks a year. Um, but uh 17, 18, 19, and into 20, I was doing 50 weeks a year. And the two weeks I was taking off, I was taking off on purpose. Cause I needed you know, sometime to go home and visit family and things to recharge the batteries. I, I was getting, I was getting extremely lucky with the consistency of, uh, of my work. And, uh, and, you know, uh, why do you get into it? And, and I hate to sound like the, those douchebag guys that go, I do it for the art form, man, but I do it for the art form, man. I really do. It's for me. I do. I, uh, I, you know, I, I, don't think I've ever sold out. I've never done a, a, a gimmick and I'm not knocking anyone who ever does because that is their path and we all have different paths. I've always, you know, the, the old cliche, do something, do a job that you would do for free and you'll never have a bad day of work. Well, I have lots of bad days of work, <laughs> but that's because the audience, but I, I love it. I absolutely love the process of coming up with something in my own head and then trying to work it out and then trying to see if it works. It's not a desperation. It's like some comics I know. And again, we're all so different. Some people just need that to function. They need the approval of other people. I'm not like that. Those are the people that also do social media 24 hours a day. You could barely catch me on Facebook. I do it when I have to, when I have to promote something or if I have something I think is funny to say. Uh, but I really, I do it. I'm one of the old school purists, you know, like, you know, I'm big in Japan, man. <laughs> I didn't pop here in the U S but I'm big in Japan and I'm not famous. I'm just kind of tall by their standard. <laughs> their standard. Do you feel like, do, do you, do you ever feel like you're never going to get booked again? Do you, do you I mean, is, is that still a real fear, fear for you? Well, I, I mean, now more than ever because of, you know, the pandemic like, and stuff, yeah. but that's, all comics are, are, are desperate and it, we have that, you could have a full calendar and then all of a sudden you go, oh, I have nothing after April. Oh my God, I'm never going to work again. 
you know, yeah, you have that fear always. And so that keeps you going. You're like, Oh, I got to get on the phone. I got to call my manager, Tony, get on there. What could we, what? Yeah. It's that panic. It's that fear. And I, you know, I'm 53 years old. There's a whole crop of, you know, and let's be honest. Okay. I am a, I'm a middle-aged heterosexual white male who kind of looks like a fat Mike Pence. I am a, Minus the fly in my head. I'm not the most sought after uh, uh, demographic of performer today. Do you know what I'm saying? Without trying to. Yeah. No, get, I understand. Again, without trying to get without getting in trouble. Really? Without yeah. getting in trouble. Yeah. It, that, and that's the other thing that, that makes comedy difficult today. Uh, today, even, even at that Chris Rock level, they, we, all, we all have to think about what we're saying before we go on stage. And in the moment, you have to think about it, but also the responsibility of being a comic is to push, to push that line, right? To push the envelope of like, what's acceptable. Can we, you know, it's kind of, we grew up on mash, right? I mean, we probably grew up more on mash reruns than, yeah. than anything else, but it was like, if you could laugh at something, then you could accept it. Right. And, and, and I think that that that's gotta be the challenge. So for you, what's the source? of your uh, of your comedy how do you you know i mean you, you don't have the jewish thing you don't have the black thing you don't have the the female thing like where where do you get your your comedy and are you writing the whole time like if oh, you're I write, I write all the time. really <laughs> no I, I i write all the time and one of the things is kind of fr that's why i did all those videos um, I, I did a hundred videos in a row with with the kids here at the house because i need i need to get it out there because I keep writing, but I don't have a place to perform and you don't want the stuff just to disappear into the ether. So, uh, you know, I, I, I have other outlets, um, but uh, <clears throat> the, the, the difficult part about thinking again, remember uh, we were talking about getting into that zone, getting out of your own way and all that. It's best when it's organic. Everything is best when it's organic, but when you are on stage, thinking, oh, I can't say that. Oh, I can't. Oh, there's, there, there appears to be, I, 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 again, I don't even know what to say right now, but uh, there's a couple that's uh, a very uh, flamboyant over there. Uh, so I don't want to say anything that could possibly, so you're like, who, I don't want to offend. I don't want to offend. And because I'm a middle-aged heterosexual white guy, I'm, I'm put to task, you know, I'm in that group, not just me. I'm in that group that's, uh, you know, held uh, uh, accountable for anything. Whereas if you check off some boxes, if you are, you know, you can, you can, you can get away with a lot. There are comedians who can go up on stage right now and say anything they want and people will clap because it's brave. But if you're a man, a heterosexual white man, they're like, I, I honestly, okay. Sorry. I'm rambling. It's a hundred percent true story. Strike me dead. I was doing a show in Lake Tahoe last February before a month before lockdown. And I just came out and I said, uh, Hey, how you guys doing? And right there, right there. Someone goes, we're not all guys. And I, I was like, Oh, he's someone's messing with me. And I go, okay, okay. Sorry. And he goes, watch the pronouns asshole. And I looked at him and here's a guy who's got a full beard. And I go, well, you're clearly a guy. And he goes, well, you're clearly what, uh, not homophobic, but uh, trans something, something phobic, you know, you're, 
I can identify as whatever I want. And I really, I was like looking around, is there a hidden camera? What's going on? I, I got heckled on my opening line because I said, how you guys doing? What's the pronouns? And it's like, wow, wow. Meanwhile, there was, there was someone of color on the show that threw the N word around like confetti, like confetti and, 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 and I just said, how are you guys doing? But I'm the asshole on that show. So that's where we are today. And so it certainly makes it difficult to navigate your way around that. So the stuff that I'm doing now, I try to, and I hate to say that I, I try to generalize it more so no one could get offended. There are guys like, like Jerry Seinfeld, Jim Gaffigan, uh, Brian Regan, who are clean, clean, clean. And they, they, they only do things that everyone could, no one could be offended by. And I'm sure st people still are somehow. Jay, Jay Leno. You gotta have an edge to be funny oftentimes, right? Yeah. I mean, that's part of it. The job of a comedian is to uh, make observations and call people out on their bullshit. That's always been the job description forever. If you're going to make fun of Democrats, then you equally make fun of Republicans and it's all good. We all sit back and laugh. Oh, that's way out the window now. You could make, you could do a joke and, and this is, this is all real. You could just question. Uh, and I did, I, I remember I, I did some kind of joke about the, uh, the governor of California, Newsom, you know, how come he can lock everyone down, but while he's, you know, he's ordering a lockdown while he's not wearing a mask at a winery and, you know, shouldn't there be accountability? And then people are like, that's because you love Trump. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no. What are you talking about? No, has nothing to do with it. I'm trying to hold these assholes accountable. All of them, Trump, Biden, all of them. They're like they're politicians. We should be able to make fun of politicians. No, no. You can make fun of one side, one side only. They're deplorable, everything else. So it's scary now. It's like, I don't want to make observations. I don't want to call anyone out. I'm going to just go, hey, what's the deal with the uh, toothpaste? You know what I mean? So I'm trying to trying to generalize. You know, I, I've been doing jokes about, the, you know, uh, uh, the mask and like what we're all going through together. You know, right. have you noticed that uh, a, a sneeze is the new fart, right? Someone sneezes, you're like, oh, what the hell is that? Oh, man, my mouth was open, <laughs> you know? And, you know, no one likes to wear a mask, I guess, unless you're really ugly. Then it was a good year. 2020 was real good if you're ugly. Because then you're like, oh, wow, I wonder if she takes it in the mask. You know, like, so trying to do, trying to do things that everyone, and, and, and so it's a, it's a challenge. Uh, it, it's a huge challenge, but, and that challenge is I'm so funny, or I think I'm so funny, or a good enough writer that I can do a joke and I defy you to try to poke a hole in it. I defy you to try to find the, uh, uh, you know, why I should be canceled for yeah, that one. Part of it, right. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I do a joke, I do a line about uh, how I am offended by the term woke. As a narcoleptic, my people have suffered in silent slumber far too long that I'm, right? So even woke people could go, all right. All right. That's good. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that that's, so the, the, it's, a, you know, it was a lot easier to do dick jokes 20 years ago. Now you have to think about what you're doing. So I do accept the challenge because it's the new normal and we're heading into this future and I want to keep working. So I'm going to keep trying to find angles that I can, you know, tongue in cheek, make fun of the current climate from my perspective, which is not the most popular perspective, 
Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's not easy. It's a lot harder than it ever was. So do you feel the, the pressure to reinvent yourself or to say, I'm going to go, I'm going to go harder, like to be more offensive and try to get away with it. Like this is the bigger challenge, right? Like throw out something that, that is going to be the most offensive thing where you're, where not only are you guaranteed to offend a few people, but you're guaranteed to offend everybody in the audience and say, okay, can I make this work? Like this is the biggest challenge or, or to say, okay, what, what, what is my angle? What's my, what's my angle as a middle-aged white guy? You know, it's I saw, I was watching some of your YouTube kind of things and, and you were talking about, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember. I mean, this is, this is probably back a time because it was, it was, it was a little bit, a little bit racial. And you were talking about how, uh, you know, you wouldn't trade with this black guy, you know, you know, he would, he wouldn't trade his, his manhood. White privilege. He wouldn't, but, yeah. White privilege. You wouldn't trade, trade his manhood for your credit score. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was wondering, you know, I was like, oh, there could be a follow up to that, right? That it's like, well, actually, I'm a, yeah, sort of struggling comedian, you wouldn't want my credit score either. So I lose on both ends. Oh, that's good. Hey, you just wrote a tagline for me. I'm and I'm taking it. I'm taking it. I'm taking it. And, and, and I'm not giving you credit for it. People are going to have to go back and watch this episode if they want to hear the origination of that line. No, that's a great tag right there, Chris. Thank We've you. We've got a but yeah, it, it, audience too. Yeah. So, so you better watch it though, you know, because <laughs> phalanx of lawyers over here, all this stuff. But uh, so, so when you've been on the road, I mean, like, can you describe what being on the road is like? Cause we see the glamorous part, you know, like I grew up with like, you know, I didn't grow up with him. I grew up watching like Richard Pryor and those kinds of guys. And you're like, oh, in Robin Williams, you're like, oh, well being a comedian looks like it's just awesome. You get on stage, everybody laughs at you. They shower money on you and it's all good. But being on the road, I'm guessing, is a little bit different, the experience. I'm sure you have a favorite go-to fast food. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. When you're at the Richard Pryor level, when you're at that marquee level, being on the road, you, you it, there's no difference between uh, being a comedian and a rock star. As a matter of fact, being a comedian is better. You might not be playing to 80,000 people like Guns N' Roses was doing. You know, you're playing to 10 or 15,000 people but it's just you. You don't have to go to sound check. You don't have to set up drums. You don't have to fight with the other guys in the band. It's just you. So that's a different road story than my road story. And you're staying at the Four Seasons as opposed to? Uh, well, the, the Motel 6, Super 8, the 9, you know, all motels with numbers in them. Places that still have keys, room keys. Now by that, I don't mean, you know, I mean the physical here's your room key, sir. You know, I still stay in those places. I have, again, this is going to sound like a joke. And I assure you that it's not. I had to buy toilet paper in October. And that was the first time I had to buy toilet paper in 27 years. Because, and I know everyone was panicking because, yeah, literally, Chris, I, every time hotels, you take those little soap, shampoo, you take the Kleenex, you take the, you know, uh, I had what I thought was a lifetime supply of toilet paper. Well, I ran out because I didn't, and I, I, I was ashamed. I actually have to go. And it was, it's not, it, it's not so much of a cheap thing as it was a badge of honor. Like, wow, let's see how long I can ride this out. Now I still haven't had to buy soap or shampoo. I have tons of those, but. These are um, all the little ones though. Yeah. 
the, uh, all the mini ones, yeah. And I'll, you ask about my favorite fast food places. I could do this in still to this day, at least 20 cities, the closest being to you, Salt Lake City. I would know which hotels had the uh, uh, continental breakfast and some had even nicer breakfasts. And so I would, I wasn't staying there. I'm staying at a Motel 6 or something, but I would get in the car and I'd drive to, you know, a West Valley in Salt Lake and I would go to the, the Courtyard Marriott and I'd walk in, I'd wave at the front desk, I'd go and I'd have breakfast and then I'd, uh, any calls in room 213? No. All right. Hey, see ya. Uh, and then I'd go get in my car and then I'd drive to the next town. I know where to eat for free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what being on the road is like. What's that? You're paying yeah. for all of it. When you're on the road, it's it's your yeah. it's your dime for the hotel room for all your food. The people, I mean, you probably have some of them that are that are putting you up. I would imagine some. Yeah. Days, but on the uh, on the uh, show nights, you're and ninety eight percent of the time they're putting you up and they're feeding you. But the in-betweens, if you're, if you're literally on a tour, and as you know, because I've, I've passed through your town several times, I have, I've done, you know, six, eight weeks in a row. And so on the dark nights, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you don't have shows, well, you're on your own. So I go crash on your couch. I stay with Heidi Volker or Chris Brigham or Galvin up in Oregon. I crash with you guys. You know, you're on your own for, for those days. So you want to try to, you know, if you're making X amount of dollars a week, you still want to come off the road with a few grand in your pocket. So it's not practical to go, you know, staying at the Wyndham, you know, on your nights off and, and getting massages and ordering out sushi. No, you're going to go stay with Chris Waddell, Chris Brigham, and you're going to go to Bennigan's and, you know. <laughs> or you say, hey, so what's on the menu tonight? What are you guys making me? This sounds great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man. But yeah, like those continental breakfasts, I would walk out with fruit. I'd take the, you know, I'd go eat, I'd eat pancakes and whatnot. And then I, would, I would take out fruit and bananas and I'd have it in the car and steal water bottles at the venues. And, you know, you you're know. all set for retirement now. You're all set <laughs> for like the, the blue plate special, right? This is it. No, no, that. you can bring it home with you. <laughs> well, when you do your speaking engagements, I'm sure they're putting you up and like you're probably staying in the Waldorf Astoria and you know you're not you're not my level <laughs> I have a wide range I have a wide range definitely because when I came when I came off Kilimanjaro so I came off yeah. Kilimanjaro we had made the movie we climbed the mountain we did all that stuff we were a quarter of a million dollars in debt or something like that and I went on the road I mean like just this is the only way I know how to how to pay for it and there was and it's funny like I always thought this was actually in Northampton, Northampton, Mass. I stayed, oh, yeah, sure. I stayed in a hotel by the bowling alley, you know, like kind of like down the hill from, from Main Street kind of thing or yeah. Main Street. I think that's Main Street. And, and I stayed in this hotel and I was positive that people were, were like cooking meth at this hotel. I mean, it was just one of those, like one of the ones that, and it's Northampton. I always thought Northampton was just totally, I was like, come on, it's Northampton. It can't be that bad. And, and it wasn't that far to go up and go grab something to eat. But, but yeah, I've definitely done those things where you're like, yeah, you know, I might keep the clothes on, so, you know, not really. <laughs> right, right, right. Getting, right. But, but I've also well, had the other ones where, and, and, and my wife and I talk about this, where it's like, we stay in the nicest places. 
when we're by ourselves. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. I was down in Mexico last year for, for a gig and I was there for three or four nights and it was just, it was just spectacular. I mean, I'm just, I'm right on the beach and I have a room that is, I mean, it's like 1500 square feet or something like that. You know I mean? It's like, and, and all I'm doing is really sleeping there. Like I'm sleeping, I'm brushing my teeth, I'm yeah. showering. I don't need this. But, but yeah, right. I get a bit of, a, I get a bit of the range sometimes because I'm often staying where, where they're staying. So, yeah. so that's the, that's the range. But when you're on the, when you're on, cause I've also like when I've done my school presentations, that's, that's for the foundation and we're paying the whole thing. And so it's, I mean, when I first started out, I was spending like 15 bucks a day. It's like free wireless, like, okay, where can I get wireless? Where can I, Yeah, yeah. okay, there we go. Get the emails, we're all set. We send them back out. Uh, three, four schools in a day. Uh, I did, a few years ago, I did a, did a tour through New England. And I think in a week, I put like 1,200 miles on the rental car. Well, I mean, you're talking to a guy that I'm like, really? That's all? No, I realize that's a ton. Believe me, I know that's a ton. But I'm like, yeah, it's kind of rookie. You wanna, you wanna talk road? Okay, hold on, hold on. I've got a little bit more on that because I put 1,200 miles. Then I flew from Boston to Chicago and did the marathon in Chicago, and then flew, oh, okay, and then flew all right, went back to work. Does that does that help me a little bit? I didn't do all that in the marathon. It ups your street cred a lot. <laughs> Wait, was it on the south side of Chicago? <laughs> it was all the way through. I don't know. I didn't know where I was. But uh, but what do you, what do you tell yourself? I mean, when you're going through, when you have these bad shows, when you're doing three four shows a, a night, when you're just when you're just in your car blazing along, yeah. staying at these super nice hotels. What do you, what do you tell yourself? How do you, how do you keep, what's the story that you tell yourself that keeps you going when often not, you might want to quit. You're away from your wife. You're away from your girlfriend. You're on yeah. the road. It's not as glamorous. Uh, as well, it sound. I mean, uh, yeah. Being away from my wife and my girlfriend is, uh, <laughs> they don't know about each other. No. Um, here, here's the thing. I, I kind of, and I got this advice from my, my grandmother on my, on my dad's side, uh, Eleanor, who was very, very supportive of my decision to forsake a real career and stability for this. She said, you know, and it's literally, it's, 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 it's corny. It's, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're all going to die and you can't take it with you. And why don't you have something, you know, so I don't like being on the road. I don't like driving and flying and hotels and all that stuff. But Chris, my passport is stamped. I've been all over the world, man. And things that I, 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 I otherwise probably wouldn't have been afford, uh, I wouldn't uh, have been able to afford to do. I've been to dozens and dozens of countries. I've been all over the United States. I've met people, I've met generals, high ranking generals in the military. I've been, I've been in, I, not in war, but I was in Fallujah in Iraq when uh, uh, the mother of all bombs was dropped in Syria, which was 50 clicks away from where we heard that, I heard war, I heard tanks and people being shot. Like, so I was like, I, I did a show at the US embassy in Kuwait for dignitaries and, and people that couldn't speak English. I've been into 
rooms, secret rooms in the military that people, civilians aren't allowed to, I've seen just some amazing things. I probably shouldn't have said that last part. Um, but, <laughs> uh, and I've, I've, I've met such an eclectic and amazing group of people that I, I wouldn't trade. I wouldn't trade any of it, man. I've seen the world and I still have. And the more you see the world, the more you realize you haven't seen shit. Right. Like I remember going, wow, I've been to three countries. I've seen the whole world. No. Well, then you get to a new one. And you're like, oh, I didn't know this or this or this. And, you know, I, I traveled all over Israel and we went to the Holy Land and the Dead Sea and just things that I otherwise would never have had the opportunity. So I feel I've lived the life of a multimillionaire at no money down. <laughs> you know, it, it, because all the cruises that I did, all those military shows, those are paid for. So I'm not, I'm not walking away with a ton of money, you know, but I, I go, I go to, you know, uh, the United Arab Emirates or Germany and I do these military gigs. I come home with a thousand bucks in my pocket, but I just saw things that people don't normally get to see. And so that's, that also helps keep me going. And my brain got me that my art got me that, um, and uh, so I, I, every now and again, I, I'll pat myself. If it all ended tomorrow, which is, you know, we don't know when it's going to start back up again. I never made it to that, you know, that brass ring level, but geez, man, I've stayed in the show for 27 years. I've, I haven't had to have a knock on wood. I haven't had to have a day job in 27 years. I've met amazing, amazing people. Um, you know, I'm not famous, but uh I can, uh, I, I come off good on a podcast because I know a lot of famous people. There's pictures of me with famous people. So <laughs> that's, a, that's a great answer. Is, is that front and center when you're, when you're in those difficult times, is that front and center of, cause, cause the thing is, yeah. yes, I mean, I agree with you a hundred percent. You've, you've lived a spectacular life. And the thing is doing what you're doing, there's uh Steinbeck wrote uh, Travels with Charlie, right? So Charlie was his dog, his, yeah. his like French poodle. And they just drove across country because he felt like he'd lost the voice of the nation. Like he'd become right. successful and he was separate and he couldn't right. connect with what's going on, which is the essence of what you do, right? Is connecting with all kinds of people all over the world. And, right. but, but can you keep that? Can you keep that front and center? Can you say, this is part of the learning process. This is part of the experience when I'm, when, when it is the most difficult, the nastiest, when you, you know, when you get into bed and go, Oh, what, what, what's in there? Like, I can't even get into bed or something. I'm going to go sleep on the, on the, on the chair in my room as opposed <laughs> to the bed, because this looks disgusting or something, you know I mean? It's like, cause these things do happen. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I do. That's, it's funny because I, I need to be reminded of that a lot of times. Sometimes I, I can do it myself. Chelsea is very, very good about uh, reminding me of, uh, of those type of things because um, you do, you do go through those, everyone goes through a depression, you know, and especially now, I mean, you know, with uh, all of a sudden working so, so for so many years, so hard. And then all of a sudden I'm out of, a job in March with nothing, you know, nothing on the horizon. And then it's like, Oh, woe is me. But then it's like, okay. But again, like if it ends all day, I, I have, I've been really, really, really lucky that I've been able to 
see all these you know wonderful things it's you know it's funny and again i, I don't want to uh uh make it political or anything but i'll watch people on facebook with opinions about what's going on today and these are people that i know personally who have really never left their hometown or their home state and they get up and they go to work in a cubicle and then they come home but they know everything they know everything about biden or trump or what's their kamala everything that's going on or fauci oh i know this i know you know they're keyboard warriors and i did i, I never respond i just sit there and i go yeah okay all right i actually do know because i have been all over the place and i have met people and i know you know but i'm just gonna i'm gonna zip it and so uh i i i i I take comfort knowing that I have had, had, had wonderful opportunities that I otherwise wouldn't have. Whereas uh, I think some people don't have those opportunities and they, they, they don't see that. I think, I don't know, I'm probably coming across as very um, uneducated and not eloquent oh. right now. But, but the more you know, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know anything. And the more you see, the more you're like, I don't know, I don't know shit. Like I said, I've been in like 50 countries right now. And I'm like, I haven't even scratched the surface of the planet, you know, whereas my first five years in comedy, I knew everything. I could have taught a class, college level. I knew everything. I'm 27 years in. I don't know. Shit. I don't know. I don't know if my next joke is going to work. That's <laughs> the way it goes. Wow. You just, I, I had a question all loaded and then you got me going in the opposite direction with your, with I'm your sorry. last statement. This is, yeah, you're making my job tough, but how do you know? So I'm going to follow up on that. How do you know when something is funny? <laughs> if it makes me laugh, that's it. That's it. it that, that is it. I am my only audience. And <laughs> if I giggle, I wake up, I wake up laughing. You can ask my wife. I wake like a lot of people wake up from nightmares. Oh my God. What was it? Gonna... I wake up laughing and she'll be like, what, what the heck? What are you doing? Why aren't you asleep? I'm like, oh, you know, literally I, th I thought of this last night. And again, this will probably piss people off and it's not a joke. It was just a funny thought that woke me up. Because uh, you can't say pronouns in the Senate floor anymore. You can't say he, she, he, you know. So you they should be called, they should be called Democrats. <laughs> they and that. And it woke me up. I literally, it's not a joke. I'll probably never, that's probably the only time I'll ever say it. But I, I was lying in bed and I woke up laughing because that thought popped into my, <laughs> popped into my head. I, I uh, what was your question? So it's, so it's, yeah, this is great. So, so it's, so it's just you, you are your, your only audience. It's not, it's not your wife. It's not, it's not the kids. It's not, it, I mean, cause obviously you work it through, through a club and you think it's funny. Yes. Are, are there times that you get out there and you go, hold on, hold on. No, that's, that's funny. Why aren't you people yes. laughing? Like, that's funny. You should, you should laugh at that. <laughs> There have been uh, there there have been uh, um, times where I've I've said something to that effect on stage, but uh, when I tell you that I am my only audience, I'm the only one that needs to find it funny. I still run it by other comedians. You know, I I, I have a, a small network of guys that you know we we uh, we have jam sessions over the phone, I'll, or I'll call someone and go, Hey, have you heard a joke like this? I want to do this joke. And, and then we tweak it with each other. We go back and forth. I, I run it by my wife, uh, you know, if she thinks it, it's funny. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who else thinks it's funny. It made me laugh. And that said, along the lines of what you were just saying, there have been times on stage where I'm trying a whole chunk of new stuff. And the, I'm like, and it doesn't work. And I'm like, I know that's funny. I know that's funny. 
And then I'll say another new joke that I don't even think is that great. And people howl, they'll laugh and they'll clap. And in my head, I'm like, that's not even funny. Why are you laughing? Don't laugh at me. You sh- you're going you're gonna to encourage me to write shitty jokes at that stupid level. And so um, the one thing that I have learned in all these years of stand-up comedy, you're never going to perform in front of the same audience twice. So you can look out and you, you think you know what that crowd is, but you don't. You're not going to know until you get there. And it's going to be different every night of the week, even though you could be doing the same routine, the same jokes in the same order. It's going to be a different crowd and there's going to be different energy in that room. And you can, the energy is, as you know, from your, of your public speaking engagements, you can feel the energy right away. You, you can, you can. And it's, and it's an interesting, and I often spend time with people beforehand. So you kind of get the temperature of the room before you yeah. get on stage, which, which can be, can be really helpful. Do you, do you still, I mean, you were saying, you know, that, that you're fulfilled, you're fulfilled doing what you're doing. You're learning, you're going around, you're, you're hustling, you're, you're grinding it out. I mean, this is like, this is like rounders or whatever, right? You know, this is, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, great analogy. Yeah. This is the, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of his name. I can't think of his name, the actor. Uh, uh, Matt Damon and Edward Norton. Well, it was Edward Norton, but then the other the guy who is the, uh, Kevin Spacey. No, no. Uh, the guy who is the, uh, who is like the grinder. Uh, the guy, he was in Barton Fink. Um, uh, John Goodman? No. Anyway, I'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. But he was like, he was the grinder. You know, he didn't take the big chances, didn't live big, but he was just grinding it out. But right. but looking at that, do you have, I've now created my, created my analogy. Do you have your World Series of Poker? Do you have the one that you go, oh, okay. Is there, is there a venue? Is there a, is there something that I want to play that would be, that is your gold ring? Oh, you know what? I've never, an actual venue? No, no. I, 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 any place where there's an audience that finds me funny is Madison Square Garden to me. It it really, it, it, it doesn't matter. It could be a golden corral. It could be a, you know, it, it could be the Taj Mahal, you know, it, it, it really, it really doesn't matter. I, I, I will tell you, I, I touched upon it earlier when I, I was performing at the U S embassy in Kuwait. And that was a, that was a kind of a pinch me moment. Now for the record, it was one of the worst shows I've ever had in my life. Um, at all of us, there was a group of us and we all bombed. And but my friend Ken Gar actually made the joke there. Like, Wow, I guess it's not a good idea to bomb at the U.S. Embassy. <laughs> and <laughs> but it was one of those shows that we were set up to fail. There were children in the room and uh, children of dignitaries. There were sheiks and emirs and and generals and five star like. And behind us, there wasn't a stage. We were just standing on a floor, and behind us was a bouncy house. One of those big bounce, and all these kids are, are playing, are jumping up and down. Um, hardly any of the people there speak English, so we had an interpreter, which is weird, you know. Mm-hmm. I, you probably have them all the time at your events, maybe sign. Not all the time. Sign. I've done it a couple of times, but it's hard timing wise. It's brutal. Yeah, and and so just looking out at uh, um, and, and it was a dinner. It was like one of these, you know, 
it would be the equivalent of the correspondence center at the White House. A lot of very important people in this room looking at five comedians, you know, telling just dick jokes and, and just the looks of disdain. I mean, it wasn't bombing. The people looking at us like we were just bad people, just kind of like shaking their heads and, you know, ashamed for whoever put this on. And again, to our defense, they, they didn't tell the crowd. Like we were a surprise. Whoever organized this on part of our uh, uh, Armed Force Entertainment Tour said, oh, you know, it'll be fun because these people are so stiff and, and uptight. We'll bring some levity to this event. We'll have some comedians. Because we were performing at a, a, a military base not too far from there anyway. So we were, we were the surprise guests. Now, it's one thing to have a hot chick in a bathing suit jump out of a cake and sing happy birthday, Mr. President. That, that's great. That's great. Uh, even a singing telegram like Buddy the Elf, you know, Will Ferrell and Elf. That's, that's funny. But five comedians who all still had to stick to our time. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, the show had to be an hour long. So we each had to do, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. And so, (laughs) and I I went third that night. I literally went right in the middle. I watched my two friends just eat it in front of me. And then I went up and still, I know it was going to be bad, but I'm like, well, I'll turn them. I'll get the crowd. I know what to do. (laughs) And I was even worse than the first two guys. And then, and then the guy who went last, and I I won't say his name, the guy who went last uh, was he just at that point he didn't care and he just went super filthy he went super filthy and we were instructed do not go filthy because there's dignitaries there's children and he just went f this and just and he made us laugh he made the other four comedians just we loved it i mean he bombed he completely ate it on stage but we loved it so he put he put on a show for us so that was that was great that's that's the setting though i mean that's the hard part right you get rooms that it doesn't matter what you do you're you're going you're going to fail how do you get a gig like that not specifically at the embassy but how do you get the gig to do like the uso stuff or is that is that what What, i mean you know i mean it's just like you get any any gig there's there's uh circuits and uh you know same thing like with cruise ships or colleges or, or their clubs there's just different markets out there. A good buddy of mine, uh, uh, Don Barnhart, who owns a couple of comedy clubs in Vegas, Jokesters Comedy Club and uh, Delirious Comedy Club. Uh, He was booking, he was working for the Armed Force Entertainment. And uh, um, he had tours all all over, all over Europe. That was just one particular one that I went on. I went, I went, um, oh, Battle Comics. I, I, I can't remember several of the different organizations that I work for, but I've been to uh, Japan, I've been to uh, Korea, I've been, uh, I've literally different companies that I've worked for, not USO. I have not worked for the USO, but Armed Force Entertainment is the, uh, you know, USO is Bob Hope and, and Toby Keith and, and Garth Brooks and Robin Williams, the big, literally, it's the, it's the A circuit. Armed Force Entertainment is, you know, my level. And here, here, here's the difference, though, and and again, I I know this from all the people that I worked with on the bases. There, like we were in uh, Africa, we were in um, oh gosh, uh, Djibouti. I know it sounds like a fake com- country. That's a real country, Djibouti. We're in Djibouti, Africa, uh, Camp Lemonier, I think it was, 
and uh, Garth Brooks had been there a week before us. Now that's a marquee name. And the crowd said, yeah, he was great. He put on a good show, but he literally walked out, did his two hours, walked off stage. They never saw him again. We stay there. We stay on the base. We hang out with these, with these soldiers, with the, with the troops. We get to know them personally. We were doing shows in an in a, uh, airport hangar. There was a troop, there was group, uh, a bunch of troops that were about to be, literally, this was in, in uh, Iraq, they're about to be flown into a skirmish or a battle, whatever, whatever you call it. And they were waiting for a uh, B-10 or B-15, again, I'm bad with the names of the planes. They were waiting for their plane to come pick them up. And so it was, it was like it, a moment of like Robin Williams in Good Morning Vietnam. We did an impromptu show. No microphone, no stage, no nothing. They're standing there waiting to go. As we're getting a tour of the base, and uh, one of the guys, Mark Yaffe, uh, one of the comics on the tour with us said, you want to hear our show? And we each just did five minutes. So we, each, we gave them a 25 minute show and they loved it. They, they And then they got on their plane and went off to battle. And we weren't paid for that. That wasn't extra part of the money. We just did that because we got to meet the troops and it felt freaking great. It felt really, really great to, because I was never in the military and I was kind of felt like kind of a wuss for not you know doing my part to serve the country. But going back and doing a lot of these military gigs makes me feel a little less guilty. You're contributing. You're helping these guys out who are in a really difficult situation. It, being in yeah. a war situation, I cannot imagine. It, it really is. You know, Chris, when we, were, when we were in Iraq, one of the places, and again, I, I can't remember the exact name, we stayed in, in the barracks. We stayed in, in bunk bed cots with 43, 43 troops, they're all 18 to 22 years old, all these young kids, they sleep with their guns. They sleep with their guns with them because in case shit goes down, they got to get up and go. And we're, we're here's five comedians in there and it's, it's a fart fest. These young kids just farting and burping and just like, it was like being in a college frat house, you know, again. But what they go through, what they go through in a typical day, that'll never, no one ever sees here on the news. It, it's not glamorous. It, it doesn't, it's not going to sell papers. But just every day when you're in Iraq sucks. It just sucks what they go through. And we just did it for a couple of days. And then, and then they ship us to Kuwait and we're staying in the Radisson right on the ocean. And three days ago, we we're in a bunk bed cot. And I'm like, these kids are still in that cot. They're sleeping in that. They don't have Wi-Fi. They don't have cell phones. They don't have all the conveniences that we do. It's awful. The living conditions are, it's hard. It's really hard. So, you know, I hate to be one of those guys, you know, give it up for the troops. But, you know, they really, they really do sacrifice a lot that is unseen and well, unreported. Mental and emotional part has to be so hard, right? If you're, if you're at war, I can only imagine that it's really hard to sleep at night. I mean, you say they're sleeping with their weapons. Like, yeah, you're thinking it could happen at any moment. So yeah. the coolest part of what you were doing is you were actually giving them a moment of levity. I mean, like they talk about laughing as being one of the most healthy things that you can do, right? And so you're giving them something healthy in a really difficult situation. So that's, that's yeah. a great gift. You might not have served but you gave them a tremendous gift. Moments, yeah. 
You know, it's weird, Chris. Um, and I don't know if you ever uh, felt this way. Cause I, I know you've, you've done a lot of things in front of our troops before they come up and they thank you. Sometimes there are almost tears in their eyes. Oh, you made my day or you made me forget about this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I feel guilty. I'm like, I just, all I did is tell you some dick jokes. You are, you know, helping keep our country safe and secure. Thank you. Thank you. And I really, it's one thing to do it online. Oh, thank the truth. But when you're looking face to face at one of these young kids and you just put a smile on their face, I got to tell you, I mean, that, that's, it's, cra it's crazy rewarding. And, and, and I do, I do feel a little bit guilty. It makes me feel smaller. Like, why are they thanking me when I'm not doing anything except for cracking jokes? You know what I mean? And then I get to leave a week later. They're still going to be there for another year. Yeah, it's it's an interesting and sometimes that I think is the difficult, the challenging part of being in front of an audience, right? Because because one, you're getting paid to be there, and and yeah. so clearly, yeah. well, thank you know, thank you. But the thing is that you are giving them a gift. You're you know that's that's how I think we have to look at it. Is that you're in front of, you're in front of somebody. And you've got to give them something that's worthwhile, you know, give them, give them that moment of levity, give them the opportunity for a belly laugh, you know, do those kinds of things and look at it. Cause it's really easy to beat yourself up too and say, what am I doing? I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing anything worthwhile, but they're leaving potentially changed after your right. 15 minutes set or, you know, 12 minutes set or whatever you had, yeah. maybe not the embassy, maybe the embassy wasn't. <laughs> oh, we're on our no fly list after that one. <laughs> we can't set foot in, a, in, in Kuwait anymore. <laughs> your picture is everywhere. So you're famous. You got that going for you. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they banned us from Twitter and, and Kuwait. <laughs> That's awesome. Well done. Uh, so, you did have a moment where your career could have, because because it's funny. I mean, you made you made a career change to do this, yeah, do comedy, and and you've lived a really full life. And what's interesting as well is that so many comedians, it sounds like, deal with deal with depression. Like they're the ones who are funny and giving it up, but yet are not entertaining themselves. Right. You right. sound entirely different than that. Where life's a giggle for you. You know, it's like, Hey, it's all, it's all good. It's all funny. And, but can, can, can I tell you one thing? I'm sorry. Am I interrupting? I didn't No, know. no, go ahead. No, no, this is perfect. You know, I, 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 I joke about this, but there's a tremendous amount of truth to the fact that I would be far more famous and successful than I am now. If I had a really difficult childhood, because a lot of the guys that some of your your biggest icons, not just in comedy and and acting and music, had really troubled, tortured, tortured pasts, childhoods. A lot of them, you know, had issues with their parents or or poverty or that. You know, um, I had it really well. My family was loving and great, and and we were spoiled little ski racers. And I don't have a lot of pain to draw from. So, you know, pain does come across. Look, Chris Rock had that special, bring on the pain. I mean, Chris Rock came from hard, you know, they had it really tough. I had, you know, and again, I have white privilege and, and I didn't have it that difficult. I, I draw from things that I think are silly, you know. I mean, the, the toughest thing you and I had to go through was, you know, waiting uh, till 2004 for the Red Sox to win the World Series. <laughs> oh well I don't mean you you also had that thing 
Uh, <laughs> no, but I, I, I don't have that pain to draw through from like a, a lot of other entertainers do. So I don't feel guilty about that, but I also, you know, I realize my place is probably where it is because I, I don't have that ne next level. Do you blame um, your parents? Yeah. <laughs> you know, why couldn't they have diddled me in the bed or something? You know what I mean? They could have, there's a lot of things they could have done to make it worse. And, uh, you know, I'll talk to them about it next time I go home. <laughs> no, I did. I, 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 I mean, I'm incre incredibly blessed. My whole family, I had some wonderful, wonderful friends going, growing up, you, you being, uh, you being one of them and the ski racing community was so tight. Right. I mean, it's very, we were like a family. Every single one of us knew each other very, very well. And it was such an intense experience that we all went through together. I, I, I kind of liken the bond to the bond that a lot of military people share. You well, because it was on the road. I mean, it was different. Yeah. Like that's where you probably felt it too, where you go to your school, you know, like, and, and growing up, like, I mean, because we started training. I went to my first, like, sleep away ski camp when i was 10 years old and that was yeah. that was Wildcat. what uh well this one i went to uh Tickham mountain because my my coach at mount tom had skied for umf for the university of maine farmington and so over christmas we went to we went and skied at Tickham, which is where they had skied and and we had the later that year the championships were at sugarloaf right and so, so we, i remember that you remember that? I know. I, I remember that fondly. It was the first time I ever beat you in the GS. I I, uh, I remember, I remember watching you run. Let's focus just for one second on the name of the mountain where that camp was. I'll let it go. I'll let it go. But maybe it could <laughs> pop up just so the viewers can see. I'll try to take the high road. But let, come on, okay. It's it, 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 it's right up there with Lake Titicaca. So which is a real lake, viewers. But I remember watching you, Chris. You were ten years old. And yeah, that, that was the first time you beat me. I'm still a little pissed by that, but could be. you had like a, a Franz Klammer run in that giant slalom. I remember you catching crazy amount of air and windmilling totally just you hawk, you hit that thing wrong. And I'm like, Oh, he's going to crash. He's going to, he's going down. He's going down. Somehow, not only did you stick the landing, but you, you know, you did that quick snap and then you, you made that turn and you were, you were just all over the place. You were, <laughs> you remember me like Felix McGrath. You remember Felix? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah that's how he skied slalom. He was just like, how did, how does he not, how is he still on his feet? But I remember that run of yours. Literally, I was standing there and just watching you hawk that air. It's still burned in my mind now. And that was what, 1978? 78, that would have been 78. Because I mean, think about that though. That was back when freestyle was getting big. That was like the Wayne Long days. And yes. Mount Tom, we had, we had one trail at Mount Tom where we could jump. You couldn't jump on it. And not that we didn't. Right, right, right. You could get yeah. your class pulled. Uh, but, but it was, yeah. And so jumping was a huge part of it. Go jump. Freestyle was huge. Oh, uh, we had a guy from Brody Mountain, Johnny Kirby, who uh, made the U.S. freestyle team. I don't know if you, I don't know if you, if you knew that name at all, but yeah, that was, uh, that was huge. Yeah, but on the, Chris, I literally, it's burned in my brain that that run of yours that you're hucking and it's just like, no way is he gonna land? No way, no way. And I was standing by your parents. Your parents were right there. You know, I was secretly rooting for you to crash because I didn't want you to beat me. 
but it, <laughs> so I didn't want to say that in front of your parents. I, inside, I was like, oh, come on, hit the gate. But you, you stuck the landing and it was so impressive. So impressive. Oh man, those were the good old days. This is, this is when the, the glory days, uh, Bruce Springsteen song's going to play, right? We've got our glory days. <laughs> You know, you know, what's interesting is that um, it, it, the last time I saw you in person was this past March. I came out there. I had that corporate show for uh, for Jimmy Schaefer and the, the Guggenheim group. So there's that wonderful picture of me, you, Heidi Volker and Jimmy Schaefer all wearing our tri-state hats that Heidi, Heidi had uh, made, made for us personally. And then one week later, the pandemic hit. So we were all on lockdown. So at least we got to celebrate our last moments of freedom as a little uh, skier unit from Tri-State days. It was it was exactly, and that was great fun. And it was and for you, you hadn't been on skis in a in, while. In a while, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I I couldn't believe that I was able to keep up with all of you guys. Like I I was I I was like wow. I still it's like riding a bike. I mean I. I did get winded riding up the chairlift because I'm not in good shape anymore. Good that, that's bad when you're out of breath just from the altitude. But um, no, I was. I can still shred. I can still shred. I, I don't brag about my comedy or my drumming or my my guitar playing. I don't brag about anything. But I can rip on skis. You had Darren Rolves last week. I was skied with him. Remember, I skied with him, oh, yeah. and I was keeping up with him. Exactly. I could probably. Darren, if you're watching this, Darren, let's do it. <laughs> live close by. He will right? do it. Yeah, no, I think I think Darren will Darren will give you a call. I remember going <laughs> to the because you didn't have any equipment and going with you yeah. and Heidi to the ski shop, and the guy yes. at the ski shop going, yeah, yeah, you you won't be able to ski on these. And Heidi and I are like, he'll be fine. Don't yeah. don't worry. <laughs> he'll he'll be fine. You had your Patriot skier on. You looked like. Yep. <laughs> you, you look like one of those people that you have to be nervous about on the ski hill. You're like, okay, hold on. He's wearing his Patriots gear. That's stay clear of that guy. He's probably just going to go straight. Yeah. Oh no, I know. I, I do. I look like a, 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 an accident. I look like a lawsuit. They're like, Oh no, we can't give you the good stuff and good consciousness. I get it. I get it. But again, it's because I started, my dad had me on skis when I was two years old. So no matter how much time I take off in between, it, it literally it's 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 the old like riding a bike yeah. you know it comes back it's that chairlift ride that first chairlift ride though right where you're going up going yeah i'm not sure if i'm going to be able to do this yeah, exactly exactly and it is it's like comedy you, you still have that apprehension it's that fear it's that jumping out of the airplane i remember riding up on that lift that morning going and, and knowing I'm skiing with some of the most elite skiers in the United States of America, I'm like, oh, this is going to be, at least I'm a comedian. And so they can go, oh, well, yeah, he's funny. That's, you know. And so you're like, am I going to remember how to do this? And then within two turns. Yeah, you're like, oh, I'm good. No problem. It might I, have I literally in my head, I'm like, I'm ready to compete. <laughs> Where's that now? That's how Come on, Schaefer, let's go. Oh, I wanted to race Heidi on the NASCAR course, but they wouldn't let us for some for some reason. Even Heidi at Deer Valley, because they were doing something over at the NASCAR course. But I, was, I literally bought it. Yeah, I was so cocky. I was like, I will, I will kick her ass because she's a woman. So there's no way, you know what I mean? No way. And and those of you watching, we've known each other since childhood. I can say that, and I did. It's not a sexist thing. 
that's the thing. If I, if I ever, th th this is the wonderful dichotomy of being on your show, Chris. And thank you for having me, by the way. Let's say your show blows up. Let's say this segment blows up and it helps my career. Just by watching this, I will have been canceled. I probably said 20 things just on your show that will get me canceled. So <laughs> that which brought me the gold will also be what is taken it away. <laughs> but yeah, I would have kicked Heidi's ass because she's a girl and girls can't beat guys, um, said Bobby. Uh, what was it? Billie Jean King and Bobby, Bobby Riggs. Bobby Riggs. Bobby Riggs. I'm, I'm the Bobby Riggs of skiing. <laughs> And, 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 Such I know, an arcane reference. and I know that Heidi would be perfectly happy to kick your ass as well. Oh, she would. No, I know. She would, she would just dust me all over the place. That would be fun. That would be fun though. But I did want to challenge her. I really did. Yeah. yeah. Well, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? It's, it's all in good fun. It's all for bragging yeah. rights now, right? I mean, that's really all yeah. you ever get is the bragging rights. And if you managed to pull yeah. it out, you would have had bragging rights for the rest of your life. Forever. Well, I never would have stepped on skis again. What would be the point? Like you want to leave on a high note. So if I kick Heidi Volker's ass in a NASCAR race, then I, good night. <laughs> you, you know, what's interesting is uh, um, how I got into standup was very back ass words. I, again, I, I wasn't, it wasn't a plan. When I was at UMass, I was, you know, I was still ski racing and, uh, but I was also in a band. I played drums in a band and uh so there was that moment where I was like, hey, maybe this will be my thing. Because it was really fun, really, really fun doing concerts. And, you know, it was just covers. You know, we had maybe one or two originals, but it was cover frat houses, local bars, that type of thing in Amherst. And uh, we, we had a lineup kind of like Fleetwood Mac. There was two women and, and, and three, three men. And just like Fleetwood Mac, as the drummer, I was the only one not getting any. Uh, <laughs> Poor McFleet was back there watching, uh, you know, everyone else. Yeah. But uh, so um, the lead singer and the lead guitar player uh, were, were a couple and they used to fight like right in the middle of our shows. Oh, no. Because yeah, be, because Chris uh, uh, would like be flirting with a girl in the audience and his girlfriend, Aaron, would be like, I saw you, you know, whatever. And so our band would be taking a lot more breaks than we were supposed to. You know how like a band does like a two hour, three hour set. And they take a break every 45 minutes. So we're taking breaks because these two are fighting and we're getting paid sometimes. You know what I mean? And so like, it's very unprofessional. So I would walk out to the microphone, step out from behind the drums, walk to the mic and just tell the crowd what was happening. And sometimes they would laugh. Right. And so I would kind of like kind of run with it. Like, you know, and then uh, it felt good. Like, Oh, I'm getting laughs. I'm, I'm, I'm out from behind the drums. <laughs> And then I would tell like some street jokes or like, uh, I remember one time I did like some Eddie Murphy routine and they're laughing hysterically. And then it came time to go back and playing and I'm behind the drums and there were some people yelling out like, bring the drummer back, you know? <laughs> and so the little ego would kick in like, oh, I don't need the band. <laughs> I'm the drummer that's going to go solo, but not with music. <laughs> not the bug. That's yeah. Yeah. But then, uh, but then, then I had moved to Boston. I graduated from UMass uh, in 91, moved to Boston that fall and then continued to hang out in comedy clubs and then was watching. And in my head, I was like, I've kind of already done this with the band. 
like what these guys are doing up on the stage. I, I think I could do that because I used to talk to audiences when I was in the band and then signed up for open mic night. And, and that was it. Now the competition history. part is kind of interesting because you were talking about the competition of, you know, wanting to beat Heidi and these kinds of things. Oh, the yeah. competitor in you doesn't go away, but. Oh no. But you got asked early, the, approaching the first season of Last Comic Standing. They asked you if you'd, if you'd, how did it work? Did they ask you if you'd be on it? Did they ask you if you'd audition? And yeah. what did you say? Um, well, I, well, I said, I said, <laughs> I said, and again, I, I don't want to mention any names because, you know, I'm still in the same business. I said, it was the dumbest idea I'd ever heard of my life. And there's no possible way anyone would ever watch something because it, it, it was humiliating to stand up comedians to put stand up comedians in, in a <clears throat> situation like that. Um, and it was, what was it? Like you, you would have stayed, I, like everybody was in a house kind everyone, of. Everyone was about to do crazy stuff. Yeah. And then, yeah, like, they, so they would have things like, um, you know, challenges, right? I guess on TikTok, it would be called a challenge, but they would say, uh, you know, you're going to get on this bus and you're going to do stand-up comedy on the bus and try to get, you know, strange civilians to, strangers to laugh. You're going to go to a laundromat. Uh, you know, you're all going to be living in a house together and it's going to be one of this and one of the, you know, they're like the Benetton, you know, we're going to have one of everything. And, and it just, it literally, it just sounded just absolutely. And, and it wasn't just me. There, there was a handful of other comics that, that I know very well um, that, you know, were asked to, to do the show. Um, and it became so right up your alley. Yeah. I mean, like, like living in a house with other comics, like after living in a dormitory at a ski academy. Right. For so well, many years, like this is, this is who you were. Right. Well, yeah, it, 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 in, in reality, yes, but it's also not a reality show. And again, I don't want to say too, too much uh, on, you know, and make it official because this is time stamped, I'll tell you. But knowing how reality shows worked, because I actually worked for a production company that shot pilots for several, several reality shows. There's no such thing as a reality show. They're not scripted. You don't have lines verbatim, but it's what they call blocked. They're blocked out. Hey, you're going to do this. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. It's so phony. It's so ridiculously fake. It's not sincere on any way, shape or form. So from that perspective, in, in, real, in real life, would I have done something like that? Sure. I, right, if I was married right now and nine other comics said, hey, you want to come live in this house and we'll do a gig at a laundromat? I'd be like, yeah, I mean, I'm, we've been on lockdown. I'll do a lot. Yeah, I'll, I'll get on a bus and do a gig. Back at the time, you know, I was young and I still thought I had a shot <laughs> of doing something much better, you know. And so, yeah, it, it did not seem like a good idea. There was another really dumb, dumb decision that I made in hindsight. Uh, a friend of mine was working on a brand new cartoon show on this relatively new network called Comedy Central. And I read one of the spec scripts that she had and it was, it was awful. It was just, I'm like, I mean, it was smart writing. It was smart writing, but I'm like in a cartoon, they're 10 year old boys in this town called South Park. I mean, who's going to watch that? 
happens to be the my favorite show of all time over cheers over seinfeld i don't think uh, you know there's there's south park family guys right here but you know listen you've known me since you were nine years old no one has ever accused me of being smart <laughs> well it's it's the way that this business goes too right because you mentioned that somebody who was on your level at last comic standing yeah. you know at your level as far as as far as comedy was concerned as far as your pay rate was concerned which yeah. this is one of those this is one of those things i mean it's it's your pay rate is something between zero and infinity right it's like what's your value it's it's somewhere in between but this is what you're getting paid on a regular basis yeah. And you said that this guy, it might've been a guy, it might've been a woman, I don't remember, went on Last Comic Standing and all of a sudden the pay rate went from X to 10X. Oh yeah. yeah it, 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 it was Dat Fan. Um, and he, I'm, I'm still very good friends with him to, the, to this day. Won. We worked together many, many times. He won. He was, uh, uh, his, his parents were from Vietnam, Asian kid. Great, great, great guy. And he was literally, he was, uh, you know, very, very, very unknown, you know, comic and yeah he won it and he went he went from having 15 minutes of okay material to hey now you're headlining and you're getting you know x amount over the you know for the weekend so yeah so what it did you know was i mean it, it catapulted a lot of people so season number two comes rolling around myself and several other comics were like hey we'd love to love to do it <laughs> That sounds like a great idea. We should it's do just the best idea. Literally, after thinking about it, it's the best idea I've ever heard in my entire life. And it was like, bye-bye. Mm -mm, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then and then same thing with the, you know, uh, South Park. It wound up being like the show that put Comedy Central on the map. And it's still running today, South Park is. So, I, you know. Um, yeah, I've, I've certainly made, made some, uh, made some mistakes and, and I've also put my eggs in some baskets that I thought now last comic standing was awful, but this is going to be the thing, you know, it's, it's like investing in pet rocks now or something like I've done some really, you know, I've made some awful decisions in my, in my life, but and, I, and you're not alone in that. It's not, oh, it's not and you look back on it and go, Oh, that's the one I should have done. That would have, that would have yeah. been the one that. That moved me. After, yeah, I mean, I, I've been on the I've been on the one yard line, like first and goal, several times with some things that really would have next leveled me, and through no fault of my own, ha haven't worked. But th that's just the business, and it's a, and it's a common tale. And I'm 53. I'm I'm certainly oh, oh, you know, I'm not in the uh, uh, on deck circle. You would think for uh, for the next level, but I'm in this thing forever, and I still believe in myself, and I believe you know one of these things is gonna, you know, and it could be living it. Could be, could be living it. It probably will be actually, this is yeah. gonna be the thing. I mean, that's how I got you on the show was that we're gonna catapult you in your, but but the thing is, you're always, you're always developing your voice, aren't you? Always, yeah. You're developing your voice and you look at like, I mean, Rodney, Rodney was, was one of the biggest ever, right? And he didn't yes. really make it until like his- He's in his 50s. 50s okay so he's in his so the clock's ticking but you know yeah well no it, it, it is true it's going tick tock tick um i uh I, i'll tell you a separate tick tock story well I, I i i know very little about it 
the kids do the TikTok and they show me TikTok videos all the time. And they're like, you should do it. And I'm like, I no, cause I have originality. So I just, I wouldn't be good. To, you know what I mean? Like I, it's, it, you know, it, it just seems like all it is is you're mimicking someone else and they do these challenges and you're lip syncing or you're, so anyway, one of the, uh, the kids found a TikTok video. I'll send it to you after we do this. Um, found a TikTok video, some young girl, found one of my videos from the laugh factory on Instagram and mimicked me to a T so much that I was like, Oh, this is, was this created in CGI? It tripped me out, blew my freaking brains. And of course it got more views than anything I've ever done. <laughs> so can you share this? How does TikTok work? I don't really know. Can you share it to like your population or to the world in general? I don't, yeah, I, I, I have actually the clip of it. Um, my wife sent it to me, so I can send it to you. I can, I'll try to figure out how to put it up on Facebook, but I don't know if Facebook and TikTok are compatible. I, I'm, I'm technologically, uh, you know, way behind, way behind the curve. Um, I, again, which is another reason why I'm probably not further along. I mean, there are people, I, some people work on their acts. Some people work on their social media. I work on my act. Yeah, you need to do both. You need to do both. You really need to, you know, work that angle. And I, I've just, I don't know, it's not my thing, social media. It, it's a hard one. I'll, I will, I will ask some questions and see if, if you can share that out. Cause it's one of those that sometimes, sometimes that is the thing that, that catapults you. I mean, this might be, which would be so backwards and bizarre. It would be awesome. It really, it would be, it would be fun. But Chris, when you see this, you, you you'll be, I mean, she was doing my mannerisms. She was, she did it. She did it. She did me way better than I did me. And I'm so random. How would she find some random video of me on, on Instagram? So I, I have no idea how she found it. Um, I should probably reach out to her and just say, Hey, God bless you. Good for you. I mean, it was, it was really, really flattering. Well, send it to us. We might have to put it out there to promote you for this whole thing or promote. Oh, this okay. Sure. I don't know. I don't know how this stuff works. I'm trying to figure out how this stuff works, but coming off of coming off of the COVID quarantine. Yeah. And you're eventually, I mean, hopefully, right. I mean, we have the vaccine things are, things are going to get better. We don't know exactly when they're going to get better, but you're going to be at, back out there. I certainly have, hope so. Yeah. Have you, have you changed at all during this time, during this time of quarantine, you say you're writing all the time. Has, yeah. has your voice changed? Are you kind of excited to see, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of like the beginning of the ski season, right? Like you've gone out and you've trained really hard in the off season and you're like, I'm right. strong. I'm good. Mentally I'm there. I'm ready. You know, is right. this kind of the way it feels for you? In, in, in a way, now I've tested the water. I've done a handful of shows so far. Not really, not not a lot, but with the COVID protocols, um, it's it, it, the audience is 25 feet away from you, minimum 25 feet. So there's like a dance floor distance between you and the nearest person wearing a mask. And you know, comedy is such an intimate sport. You need that eye contact, people right in the front row, and again, the energy to feel their energy. Well, they're so far back. You can't really see them. And if they're laughing, it's kind of muffled. And if someone heckles you, heaven forbid, it's John Wilkes Booth. Where did that come from? You know what I mean? Because you can't, they're masked up, masked up. 
you have three different microphones. Um, when, when the host brings you on stage, normally we hug or we at least shake hands. You can't go near that person. You're standing in a box on stage. You can't leave that box. It's very, so when you say it's like approaching, like ski racing, it went from bamboo gates to rapid gates to the stubbies to the super long skis to the hourglass shape. Well, this is actually like going in reverse. It's like having the, the stubbies, the hourglass skis, and now we're going back to long skis and bamboo. It's like, oh, 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 that's, so it's, and the political climate and the wokeness and the social justice warriors looking to cancel people everywhere, it's remarkably harder than it was even a year ago to be a stand-up comedian. And it's going to be, hopefully things, you know, get get a little bit better but i'm up for the challenge that's that's the thing it's gonna suck but like hey i would rather be out there attempting something that i probably will fail at than you know sitting here you know at the house playing my guitar and uh you know writing stuff that doesn't have an audience for so you know what i mean you need an audience don't you i mean it's almost like you need that purpose to yeah to really shape your, to shape your message, to shape your joke, you need the immediacy and you need that adrenaline sometimes. I mean, it's like you live off of that adrenaline. I was there, I told you I was gonna get you out on the last one, but I was there one time when it got a little too intimate and I, I you know, I, I, need to, I need my sleep. So, so I was there, we were there for the, for the early show Right. And then we were back home. This was in Ogden, Utah. Oh, yeah. Wise guys. Wise guys in Ogden, right. Utah. And so you called me up after your second show and said, I created a fight. <laughs> somebody somebody was heckling you on the, which I would imagine happens. And somebody else was like, hey, hey, it, this guy's funny. Like, shut up. We don't want to listen to you. We want to listen to him. And I guess it, I mean, from what, from what you told me, it, yes. it came to blows. It came to, it came to blows. In the parking that, lot. That, that's happened on, on uh, several occasions, not with just me, other comedians. Because like, and again, more and more, especially with social media, everyone has a voice now. And it's one thing to have your voice on the keyboard or texting, but people think, you know, the uh, illusion of live performance is out the window now. They're like, well, if I can comment on it, I can just say whatever I want. It's people heckling left and right now. And sometimes audience members get pissed because they paid to watch a show. They don't want to hear some jerk off's opinion in the last row or, you know, or so a lot of times audience members will, Hey, shut up. And they fight with each other. And that was one of those, you know, and it's funny because it was in, it's in Utah and it's heavy, heavily Mormon populated. And so it's one thing for Boston guys to get mad and F you, F you, F you. And these guys are like, you know what? Cheese and rice. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to whip your gosh darn tushy out in the parking lot. You, you silly old S is like Ned Flanders arguing. <laughs> Oakley, Oakley. So to see, to see Mormons get pissed at each other was very funny. It was very funny. Memorable. <laughs> is that scary i mean it has to be scary like because you're the guy on stage and we yeah. talked about it earlier like you've got to push the envelope and if oh, you yeah. push the envelope you run the risk of insulting somebody of and course yeah. somebody who's going to come find you afterwards mm -hmm. yeah 
what 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 is that kind of fear like? Because you have the fear of getting on stage. I hope people love me, and then right. you have the fear of like, I hope people don't want to kick my ass. Yeah, there's and and I I don't think about it to be honest with you. It has happened. I've been confronted on more than one occasion. Nothing bad has ever happened. Um, except for there, there was one time that, that I was, that I was afraid for my life. I was in, uh, Texas, Beaumont, Texas at a place called GK's comedy club. And it was, you know, very Texan, the heart, heart of uh, Texas. And, and again, there was, it was one of the, there was a bachelorette party, a bachelorette party in the front row, all these young gals. And there was a guy way in the back who used to go out with the girl who was about to be married. And so he's heckling, he was heckling her and she made a comment and, and and I'm not doing anything. He's not mad at me. He's yelling at her. I'm having fun with the girls in the front row. And she says, oh, he's just pissed off because I dumped him because he got a little old dick. Right. And now the people immediately around her can hear that, but the rest of the audience can't. So I make the mistake of holding the microphone down and I go, sweetheart, could you repeat that? So everyone could hear it. So she says it now the whole room is, Oh, they're laughing. So this guy gets up and he starts coming towards the stage. Now he's not mad at her. Somehow he's mad at me because I facilitated that. I was the, uh, uh, Jerry Springer of, you know, the, I instigated. So he's coming to kick my butt security guards the security who are normally non-existent, they're all over this guy like crazy and they're dragging him out. And the audience is literally doing the na, 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 Hey, Hey, Hey. And as, as they're dragging him out, I'm being um, what would probably be considered homophobic by today's standards, but I'm, I'm blowing him kisses. I'm going, I'll see you later. Oh, honey, make sure the bed's ready. I can't wait to see you after the show. Oh, please, please be in the parking lot. Oh, I can't, you know, I'm doing that. And it's not a good idea. And the audience is just, die- they're, they're just, you know, pounding the tables, you know, laughing. And I'm in the moment, you know what I mean? In hindsight, it was dumb. So that was on the early show. We have a 1030 show, which ends around midnight. I sit at the bar and I have a couple of cocktails and the only people left there are a couple other performers and the staff. My hotel room is directly across the street, motel room, kind with the key. Yeah. And I walk out, I walk out into the parking lot and I'm a, I'm a little bit tipsy. And uh, this guy goes, Hey, Hey, Mr. Funny man. And I turn and, and it's him. He's leaning up against the car. Now he, he has a gun. And he's, he's just spinning it. You know, the, he's, he's got a little pistol. He's not aiming it at me. He's just spinning it, you know, doing this kind of thing. He goes, come on over here. See how funny you are. Why don't you t- take a look at, I, I just bought this. It's like a 38 snub nose. Great little, uh, you, oh, you'd love this thing. And I'm like, oh, and I hightail it back into the, to the club. And I, and I tell them, I go, hey, this guy's got a gun. And they're like, did he aim it at you? I'm like, no, 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 no. But he, he wanted, he was like saying he wanted to show it to me, which, you know, uh, can you call the police? Like it's Texas, man. What what are we going to tell the police? He didn't threaten you. He didn't aim it at you. He didn't do anything wrong. Everyone has a conceal thing in in Texas. And so uh, I go, can you guys walk me? literally i was scared shitless man because i'm not a gun guy i've never seen you know what i mean and again chris he didn't aim it at me but 
the fact that he wanted to call me over to show it to me, you know, I mean, it wasn't going to end well. <laughs> he you might not have shot me. Enough but, for me. Yeah, that would be, that would scare me to death. Right? Yeah. So I, I was like, what do I do? What do I do? And and I, I asked the, the security guys who were still there and they were drinking now too, because all the customer, the place was officially closed. It was only just staff and and they said, let's just wait a little while. We'll walk you to your room. And the best advice we can give you is go home. Because like I said, the motel was right across the parking lot from where it was. So if this guy watched me going to the motel, he's going to see what room I'm in. Right. It's, it's not a hotel where you go inside and go up an elevator. I'm walking into like a motel six so he can see where, you know what I mean? So I did. I, I, uh, I had a uh, Colleen Quinn. Do you remember her? She was a ski racer from. Right. Yeah. Yep. He lived in Houston at the time. So I got in my car and uh, I drove to Houston that, that night, right after the show, because I was scared. And I was driving the whole time, looking in the rearview mirror, going, you know. In your like little rental, oh, you didn't have a rental car, you had your car. Uh, yeah, because remember, I used to drive pretty much everywhere because I hate flying. But now, I, I still hate flying, but now I, I've just gotten over the driving, so I'll, I'll fly now. But yeah, it was a, uh, some blue, I don't even remember what it was. I remember it was blue four-door sedan. Mazda. I had a Mazda Protege. Nice. <laughs> Mazda. Truck they could just drive right over you. Probably that's what I'd be worried about. It's like this guy's just gonna drive right over me. Just, just <laughs> monster truck kind of thing. Oh man. Mm. Oh yeah. GK's Comedy Club. That was uh, yeah. That, so that that was the scariest it's ever been. I, I've I've. I've plenty of comics have gotten into fist fights afterwards you know that, that, that it's more common than you would think about i don't think people talk about it but you're especially today no matter who you are or what you're saying or how you're saying it you're going to offend somebody someone will find some people just look for there's buzzwords you know and you know you you could say uh oh man someone punched me in the face and you know i got a black eye and someone would hear black guy. He just said black guy. I said black eye. He said black guy. And you know what I mean? Like some people, are, they're just looking. They're looking for, you know, that that in. And they'll, you know, spot off at the mouth and, you know, try to be the social justice warriors and shut you down. And that's just where we are today. I hope it gets better. I, I would think, you know, we have a, you know, a new president was sworn in yesterday and a lot of people hated the, the old one. I would like to think that the America would take a big sigh of relief and maybe lighten up a little bit about stuff and go, okay, let's, let's start fresh. Maybe we don't need to be so uptight about stuff now. Hopefully it gets better. I, I don't know, man. I'm not a political guy. I don't know. I don't have an opinion, but I'm, I'm hoping that people can just go, hey, we have other fish to fry. We're not going to we're not going to cancel you if you accidentally, you know, uh, uh, misidentified some a gender, you know. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. It's what would be what would be the advice that you would give somebody starting out now? I mean, granted, you don't have to you don't have to couch it in everything that you've just been talking about. But but, you know, you you've had a great life doing yeah. doing what you love doing. You said you're not really working because you love what you're doing. Yeah. What would, what would be some, because there isn't, and there isn't the security, right? The security of, you don't get paid every two weeks. You don't have a 401k. You don't have a, a, a health plan. You don't have, 
I mean, I, I assume you have these things that you've had to purchase for yourself, but you don't, right. you don't have that stuff, you know, which is part of, part of growing older and, and, you know, somebody who's, who's going to want to do this, what would you, what would you want to say? What would you say to them if they're yeah. like, yeah, man, I want to be a comic. Uh, now, I, I, again, there's two separate sets of advice. There's pre-pandemic and then there's post-pandemic. And as far as my health insurance and 401k are concerned, I married her in uh, November. So that's <laughs> it's on her now. Okay. So, but literally, the, the the best advice I would give anybody, and again, younger comics don't want to hear this. Ten thousand hours. You're not going to be good until you put in. You know, it's just getting up at laundromats, and but don't turn work down. Work for free. Do go anywhere. Get time in front of that microphone, in front of two people or six people. It doesn't matter. It nothing is going to make you better than repetition. And it's like that for, you know, Chris, any sport, any acting, any, anything that you want to get good at, you have to do so much that you're not that you're sick of doing it, but that you're like, okay, okay, I got it. Okay. I got it. You know? So just do it over and over and over. And for younger comedians, just because a joke doesn't work, doesn't mean it's not funny. Don't throw anything away. And every comic will tell you that at any level, like, you know, because you can look at something two or three years, four years down the road and look at it and go, oh shit. All right. I can see why it didn't work then, but I know how to make it work now. Or I have a different voice now. I can. So if, if it made you laugh, it's funny and it'll always be funny. So don't throw it away. Just revisit it. Just keep retooling what you're doing. Well, you know, you know how many times me, I'm sorry. I keep cutting you off. I apologize. No, it's all good. It's all good. But there's you're so, the man. So so many musicians talk about like, oh, they had this riff, you know, and they never did anything with it. But then they went to revisit, you know, Slash with Sweet Child of Mine was just noodling around, you know, like sometimes they put it on a later album and it's like the biggest song of their life because they couldn't get it to work on that third album. But on the seventh album, they got a new sound or they changed the tempo or, you know, they changed the key that it was in or whatever. And boom that's what a joke is it's a it's a musical composition and just because you know you're playing in in, in uh, e flat right now it might work in f sharp so don't throw it away well it's it is it's timing and sometimes it's the luck and sometimes it's just whatever the inspiration is too that you've been telling this joke forever and it hasn't been working and then something changes and you just go in a little bit different direction and all of a sudden it's like whoa all right yes Yes. That was it. It opened the key. Like you, yeah. like, uh, what did I say? I, I don't remember what I said. Can you tell me what I said? Cause I, I know that it worked. I just don't remember what I said. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you, you know, you know, it's a very common uh, technique that a lot of comedians will do with a joke that is very edgy. Um, Cause you, you, we generally write in the first person. So if you're going to do something that is really pushing the envelope and it doesn't work, but you know, it's funny you can change the perspective. So instead of saying, I, I, I did this, I did this, you'd be like, you wanna know how dumb my roommate is? Or my, you wanna know how dumb my friend is? My friend is so racist, here's what he did. And then you tell the same racist joke that you originally wrote in the first person, but now you put it on someone else. So now you're with the audience like, wow, that guy's an asshole. But isn't that joke funny? <laughs> So that's a little glimpse behind the curtain of Oz. A lot of times when you see a comedian shitting on someone else for their racist or, or, or whatever perspective, 
that isn't woke, they wrote that joke in the first person and then they, that, I mean, that's a common technique. The comics been doing that since the biblical times, you know? <laughs> I think Judas did that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He just changed the perspective. <laughs> so where can people find you? Uh, home nowadays, homeschooling the uh, kids uh, with Chelsea. Private, private, uh, private events that you're doing for people. They can come to yeah, your house. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I've uh, the the next shows that I have are at Jokesters Comedy Club in Las Vegas, March 14th through 17th. That's it. Um, and hopefully there'll be more to follow. Uh, I mean, it's play it by ear. I literally, I just did three weeks in a row in Vegas. Now I got home two days ago. Uh, and hopefully those won't be my shows for 2021. Uh, but yeah, things just aren't, everything's on hold. Things aren't open in, in, in Nevada, really. You know. Yeah, no, I'm with you 100%. It's the same kind of thing. And you do what you can and, and you keep working on your craft and because it is yeah. a craft too. I and mean, that's that's one of the beautiful things, I mean, is that you, you might be getting older, but you're continuing to gain experience and continuing to work on that craft. And if you have a craft that you can work on throughout the rest of your life, that's right. something incredibly fulfilling when those little things really mean something that little thing is and you know what you get to know what that little thing is you're like wow like i'm an expert now i i actually know what i'm doing <laughs> so yeah. yeah but anyway yeah dude well you know that's the thing about art any any art form that you do is 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 there, there's no age limit you, you you become a better painter when you get older maybe your hand gets uh, shaky, but you find a way to adapt and work around that and, and paint in a different color or whatever, or music or com any kind of art. That's I mean, I'm going to do this till the day I die. I mean, I, I hope to be on my deathbed. And the last thing that I say makes people in the room laugh. Or go right at a show. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want my last words to be sorry. <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, that, that is because things you could always find funny in anything. And, and again, this is a quote from my grandmother, Eleanor. Uh, she didn't make it up, but um, she used to say this all the time. You don't, let me get this right. You don't stop laughing when you get old. You get old because you stop laughing. Yeah. yeah. And so some people get so serious about themselves, you know what I mean? And they take everything too seriously. They're, they're old, they're old, they're old souls. You know, uh, th those of us who laugh have that Peter Pan complex and I, hopefully I live to be 90 or older and I'm still cracking jokes all the time. Well, part of it, I think also is that you're putting yourself in uncomfortable situations, yeah. which is where yeah. you don't grow old as well. Right. It's so easy just to think, well, I want to be secure in my life and my life gets smaller and smaller. And if you right. put yourself in an un unsecure, insecure situation, then you're just like, oh no, now I've got to make something happen. And all the synapses are firing and you're actually alive yeah, and yeah, scared, yeah. you know, like scare yourself a little bit. So yeah, that, that to me, I mean, I, I love what you're doing. I am, I am completely and entirely jealous that you are funny 
I mean, every once in a while I'm funny and I'm like, oh, that's so cool. Like, oh, they laugh. That's awesome. I wish I could just go beginning to end and actually be funny, which is why I've done open mic night. Cause I feel like it's one of those, one, it scares me to death, right. but two, if I can learn how to be funny, then it can be useful to me as I move forward. So I'm completely jealous, but, but just, and also just thank you for, for talking us through for, for revealing a bit of a bit of what comedy is all about and what being a comedian and what being a working comedian is all about. Right, right, right. Well, you know, I'll, uh, I, I appreciate it. It was an honor to be on your show. And, and obviously the people watching, you and I have been friends since we were nine and 10 years old. So it's, it's always, oh, and I'm glad that we've maintained that friendship. We, we never lost touch with each other. We've been in touch with each other since childhood. So I, I think that, I think that's remarkable. So we're, we're friends over 40 years, Chris. <laughs> we're, we're friends 42 years. Friends since bell bottoms kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, and, and you, and you are very funny. So I, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. That's, that's very your, do your viewers know that you were once in uh, people magazines, 50 most beautiful people alive. Do they know that? <laughs> You got to put a picture of that up. I'm sorry if I embarrassed you, but you were on that soap opera and you were on that. I, 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 I've been like, I, I wouldn't even make 50, uh, 50 most annoying people's list. I mean, you were, you know, 50 most beautiful people alive and you still look great. And, and this, uh, thank you. It's, it's, it's all the stylist. <laughs> but no, thank you. No, that actually, that did more for, I mean, it's kind of like you talk about the changes in your career that did more for my career. Than, than like all the medals I won, you know, in some ways, just yeah. my recognizability. It's funny. And you just, yeah. just kind of go, oh, okay, well, that's, that's a direction. I had no idea what to expect, but that's the way it works. So cool. Well, I will let you go, man. We have talked for a long time, but it's been interesting all the way along. So Rick, thanks a ton for the people at the, uh, in the audience, please watch us, you know, please continue to, to watch the, Watch it on YouTube, go to Spotify, Apple, all those places that you find that you find your podcasts. And we will continue to have fun, interesting people who are experts in the experience of being human. So thanks so much. Take care. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Whiteout Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.